Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, all of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift, this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Uh, Giannis, did you know that, did you see how the bear that mauled our past podcast guest, Amber Kornack, <clears throat> is dead? Is dead or relocated? Dead. Just oh. fresh dead. But so, I think I, but just recently also, we, I, we got a thing about it being relocated. Yeah, right? it can't, it wasn't able to keep itself out of trouble. Oh. So some dude just outside of Libby, Montana, had a elk he'd killed in his garage. And the bear busted into his garage to get the elk. And it was like, kind of like a three strikes, you're out. Right. Like pretty much almost killed someone, got a bunch of trouble, got relocated, got a bunch more trouble. It's dead. I should be asking Amber about this, not you. Because she didn't want nothing to happen to it. No. Guess how no. old that thing was? 25 years old. Mm-hmm. 550 pounds. He gained 100 pounds <clears throat> from, when he got, when, from when he got caught in October to when he got killed in November. He gained 100 pounds. Really? Yeah. He went from 450 to 550 between October and November. That's amazing. That's a lot of eating. Yeah. I haven't been able to do that in my entire life. No. And, you know, we just recently uh, killed a 550-pound fi- pig, so I'm glad to have that frame of reference. I think that a bear Oh, looks, is that how much beans weighed? That's right. Huh. So with yeah, a, you can imagine. you can imagine. Because beans wasn't that intimidating. Yeah, but he also doesn't have fur. 
making him puffy. Yeah. He's not quite as muscular either. I'm still back wondering about Amber and getting mauled by the grizzly bear. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah, you'll have to you listen. You should go back and listen. What was that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yanni, look it up. What was that called? Wait. Oh, it's horrific, man. Oh, no, it's not the same. She's a grizzly bear. <laughs> she's a grizzly bear researcher, but she had just started being a researcher and she was out collecting hair samples. They're doing like a genetic study and she's out collecting hair samples from wire traps. Like basically you put out a scent and they use barbed wire or whatever around it and the bear goes in there to get it and loses fur on the barbs. Right. And she was out checking hair traps and got mauled horribly, Damn. came in from behind her. It was an interesting conversation we had with her. She all of a sudden stumbles into it, and it was just like right there, and she just knew. Like he started coming, and she knew what was going to happen. And he bit her in the back of the head real bad, um, and she grabbed her pepper spray and couldn't even see the bear at the time. It was mauling her and held it over her shoulder. Quick thinking. Yeah, and just point blanked it into its face. <laughs> and it dropped her and took off. So it works. Yeah, and everybody's like, oh, yeah. pepper spray doesn't work all the time. It's like, nothing. Yeah. So I heard someone recently, nothing works all the time. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll give that a listen. Yeah. <laughs> Episode 167, and you, you'll, you can't forget the title, Mauled by a Grizzly. <laughs> we just got right to it on that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll have to, in, in the next week or two, call Amber and ask her if she's bummed that the bear that mauled her and nearly killed her is dead because she didn't want anything bad to happen to it. Mm-hmm. Well, she's a Which is a thing. That's like a thing that happens with people that get mauled by grizzlies. A lot of times people that get mauled by grizzlies don't want them hurt. And I w- if one got me, I would like to know it was still out there. Yeah. But I think Unless that, I got it. If I got it, it'd It was be cool. getting up there in age anyways. I, yeah, I mean, think how old is it going to get? As pragmatic as she was, you'd call her a pragmatic person, wouldn't you? Yeah. I feel that she sort of knows that that happens to bears and then it's just like unlucky that it happened to the one that messed with her. But that's just the times that we live in that when bears and people have conflicts, the bears are going to get ousted. Yeah, especially a repeat offender. I mean, the fact that you can maul someone and pert near kill them and then still get to be alive Mm -hmm. (laughs) says a lot about human restraint. That's right. Yeah, we're not allowed to do that. Generally speaking. No. If I went up to Yanni. <laughs> mauled him. Mauled him real bad. And then Yanni's like, but I don't want anything bad to happen to him. They'd still give me a talking to. Oh, yeah. Uh, our special guest today, historian. What do you like to go by? Author, historian, historian, and author? Author's better because I, I'm yeah, actually no, not. I like that better too. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I have an English master's degree, so I'm not trained as a historian, but I learned on the fly. Uh-huh. You know? Buddy Levy. Buddy Levy. I was going to ask you that before the thing, yeah. and I screwed it up, and I forgot to ask. No worries. Levy, Buddy Levy. Levy, yeah. you go by. Yeah. Author. Give people a range of some of the things you've written about. Wow. So I've written about trucker hunting, uh, Davy Crockett, the conquest of the Aztecs, <laughs> the first Europeans to descend the entire length of the Amazon. Geronimo. Geronimo. Um, a blind adventurer who summited Mount Everest and kayaked the Grand Canyon, who's currently on the peak of Blanc in Nepal today. And then, let's see, Labyrinth of Ice, the um, Greeley expedition. So and in addition to, um, I covered adventure racing as a journalist for about seven years fo- following these wild um, outdoor uh, 
they're called multi-sport endurance competitions. Yeah. Um, and then I was on uh, Brad Meltzer's Decoded, a history channel show, trying to not solve historical conundrums. Uh, well, we tried to solve them, but mostly we didn't solve them. And we got a lot of shit for that, too. It's like, you know. People what, wanted you, it solved. Are you ever going to solve, you know, did D.B. Cooper, like, did he get away or not? You know, we're like. No way. Well, no way. Looks like he did, though. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I'm a chameleon. Hold on, so you, you know? think D.V. Cooper got away? Absolutely. Almost. Can you tell people who D.V. Cooper is real quick? So yeah, there was 25% a- 25% uh, <laughs> of people will know. No. Really? I don't know. Phil, you know who D.V. Cooper is? I don't. Yeah, he he jumped out of the plane kind of where I grew up, so I know where he is. Oh. Or who he is, I mean. Yeah. So 50%, because Phil knows and yeah. Yanni don't. What? So you're from uh, like Seattle, Portland area? In between there, yeah. Okay, so, so yeah. yeah. So this, this guy um, who- signed into the, uh, as D.B. Cooper and, and he boarded an airplane in Portland heading to Seattle. And when he, when he got on the air, he landed in Seattle and then he, he asked for, while he was flying, he, he told them, he told the FBI that he wanted parachutes and $250,000 and, uh, or he would blow up the plane. And he had what looked like a, turns out to be a fake bomb. So the FBI accommodated him. They gave him, they brought the money onto the airplane and they brought parachutes and he let everybody off the plane except for like a flight attendant and the pilot, of course. Uh, and he got up to 10,000 feet heading back over the mountains in Washington and he deployed the rear aft stairwell of this airplane or he asked the stewardess, flight attendant to deploy it. At which point he had already put on the parachute and he freaking got, he jumped out of the airplane with all the money. Oh yeah, man. And so the but whole- they don't think he'd ever parachuted before. <laughs> well, no. So the, if you, if you, uh, if you research it, you realize that there are a number of, um, possible suspects, right? So historically have, you know, FBI, it's, it's actually unsolved still, but- uh, Like who the hell the guy think, actually was. Right. Well, we think it was this guy named, um- Kenneth Christensen, who was a flight attendant himself and had done, like, he was a paratrooper in the military. So he knew everything about how to jump out of that airplane. And there's a whole bunch of reasons that we think it's him, but um, it was really fun. Now, why know. do you think that he lived? Because I thought they, didn't they, like, so they, they found, found an old sack of rotten money and stuff They around? found money in the, in the stream, and they found, um, they found money hidden at this house in Bonnie Lake, Washington. And we went to the house uh, during the filming of this episode. And, you know, right behind this house, there was buried like $5,000. And and then there were other things. This guy, he really, right after he, um, right after this all happened, this guy, Kenny Christensen, bought a brand new house. Uh, yeah. and, and there's another guy who we interviewed named Bernie Geestman who gave us the indication that it was probably, you know, he was an accomplice, uh -huh. I believe. But- you know, he, Bernie Giesman went wouldn't go so far as to like obviously admit it because I mean even the statute of limitations probably I don't know if he could even get arrested for it now but um, he didn't want to be you know admit that he'd been an accomplice to this you know the only unsolved hijacking in American history American aviation history pretty badass though. So you so they, like if you they, right they now, never okay. found the body remains. No, no. And, and we went to Minnesota and interviewed this guy that it was Kenny Christensen's brother. And he gave us some pretty compelling evidence that um, you know, there was a deathbed confession that he that he told 
uh, his brother, that it was him. Um, of course, it's hard to really corroborate that. And I think his brother's dead now. We filmed this back in um, like 20, 2010. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that. Yeah, if he was dead, there'd be a dead guy laying there. Well, how right, right. Do, how so there was never that, a body. They did find how a do parachute, the people that, too. But how do the people... I think we're getting way sidetracked <laughs> from what I want to talk about. But now we're now on the subject. I got two things I want to ask you about before we talk about what we're supposed to talk about. Uh, let's say I was the perspective. Let's say I was a guy that thought he was dead. Like I was a minute ago before we started talking about it. Yeah, you know I'm not, but I was. But let's say you were an informed person who thought he was dead. And one said to this informed individual, why is his body not laying there? What would that informed individual say to explain the absence of a body? Right. So there are You following my question? Yeah. But like why you're saying, why didn't they ever find a body? No. That's not what I'm saying. What are you saying? Okay. I'll just try it again. Imagine that I, imagine that you're engaging with a person who believes he's dead, that believes he died jumping out of the plane. Okay. And this person's well informed. And you say to them, does this person, where's the dead body then? What would the person throw out there as an explanation for why there's no body? Right. Well, uh, he got away. How about that? No. Or no, he was uh, eaten no, by a bear. Oh, yeah. That, okay. <laughs> uh, he could have been eaten, think he by got wolves, eaten by a bear. Eaten by wolves. There were no wolves in that area back then. <laughs> That's what people who were semi informed would say. Um, there are other uh, animals that could, I mean, they're coyotes. How about. Okay. Uh, so that his know, body was scavenged, scavenged by wild animals. And, and that would be a thing pecked, you could say. Pecked down to bone. But, but, yeah. but they, uh, they, they literally, I mean, they did find a parachute and they found money. So it looks pretty much like the guy got away. Why does that make you think he got away? Well, because- Why would he leave the money laying out in the woods? Well, he might not. So he, some of the money was um, not properly tethered to oh, him. Oh, so, so he, he, you know, he went couldn't chase the, it all down. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's fun because this is the reason, story. reason that we've, you know, people have been trying to argue about this for like, you know, whatever, since the 70s. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, it's funny because it comes, it comes yeah. back up all the time. Yeah. Because people, like, in, in America, we just, like, rehash every 10 years. Oh, like, absolutely. oh, God, remember, <laughs> whatever happened to D.B. Cooper? Right. Yeah. 250000 doesn't seem like enough to try to pull that stunt off. Back then, though. Yeah, but you adjust it for inflation. What, it's probably, what, what is it, a million bucks? You could retire on two hundred and fifty k, couldn't you, here in Montana? <laughs> sure. Move, move, move down to Miles City where Steve yeah. wants to move. <laughs> greatest, <laughs> greatest hunting fishing yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, but uh, adjusted for inflation, it was probably four times that. Exactly. So yeah, you can jump off a plane for a million bucks, a little adventure. Yeah, yeah, and and we talked to a number of people who, um, well, there were copycats afterwards, and we talked to you know um, parachute instructors who were like, oh yeah, he could definitely make the jump. That's not a problem. You know, they've jumped out of they were jumping out of airplanes all the time. So yeah. Anyway, that was only one of, you know, there's like, I don't want to talk about Decoded forever, but it was a really fun, um, it was fun cruising around kind of sleuthing historical mystery. For sure. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. how many, um, how many books have you written all together? I think seven. Yeah. You know, you want, you want a hot tip? Yeah, I do. You know what you ought to do? We're you talking got, big time bestseller. You right got here. my next book for me. Big time bestseller. Let's go. Claude Dallas. I like Claude. no one. No I, one's touched it since uh, Jack Olson or whatever his name was. He wrote "Give a Boy a Gun." 
Right. But a lot happened after that. So like Claude Dallas escaped from prison, got caught, like went like got out. He's back out now. So no I, one knows where he is. I'm jotting it down. So I was he's a teenager. He's a fugitive right now. Claude, da- no, no. So Cla- real quick crash course. Claude Dallas was uh, a trapper, self-styled mountain man, but a fur trapper back in good fur price era. A lot of bobcats are very valuable, and he was trapping, I believe, around like the border of. Like Idaho, Utah, yeah, out in the desert there. The Io, there's a name for it, like the Ion, Idaho, Oregon, right? Desert. I was a teenager in Ketchum, Idaho, when when this happened. I okay, I believe. Yeah, so he was trapping out in the desert, and what he was doing is one state the season was open, and one state the season was closed, and they had a feeling that he was trapping in the closed state, but camped in the open state. And so he was he was having cats. He's like, oh, yeah, I got all these cats. But they're like, yeah, but we feel like you're catching them across the border where you're not supposed to. But the two game wardens come in to raid his camp, and he's also got a dead mule deer hanging there because he's, he's living <laughs> off deer meat. Yeah. He's got a dead mule deer hanging in camp. Gets into a skirmish with the game wardens. Different his like He's the only guy that lives to tell about it. But he says the game wardens were harassing him and tried to get the drop on him. They have a shootout. He wounds the two game wardens, but then what seals his fate is he takes a twenty-two caliber pistol and goes and, and, and kills both the game wardens in cold blood, shoots him in the head. That'll then, do it, generally. Then uh, heads off into the desert. There's a big manhunt. He finally gets caught, goes to jail, escapes. It's a great story. Years go by. He gets caught dumpster diving somewhere. Goes back to jail, gets out. He wanted his privacy, and they let him loose, and he just vanished into the ether. Wait, now he, no one knows where it, he is. This is true. I thought they got him. They did. Yeah. They got him well, twice. Sounds like you should write this. They one. got him the first time. They got him the second time. Then he served his time, and people were like, I cannot believe you're going to let out of jail a man who killed He's a murderer. But here's the thing. People like, like when I was a kid, like Hellbilly's like... I hesitate to say this, but like a lot of like total hellbillies looked up to Claude Dallas. Right. He's a cult hero, which yeah. is disgusting. <laughs> it really is. Because I was even guilty of as a little kid because Trapper and Predator Caller Magazine would do articles about Claude Dallas. And they'd be like, you know, you really shouldn't kill game wardens, but, you know, there's something to be said for living out in the desert trapping bobcats. And it was like, and people acted like that. There was like sort of like up in the air whether or not this guy was a good guy. I think they, I, rather than letting him out of jail, I think they should have snuck a twenty-two shell in behind his ear. Right, and you know that's similar uh, thing with DB Cooper, where he's got cult hero status, and people seem to forget the fact that he, you know, pretended that he was going to blow up an aircraft. Um, he gets off a little bit because he he let the didn't hurt anybody. He let the passengers go, but he's still. I mean, you know, he. It's funny how yeah we gravitate toward characters even or figures historical figures even when they're you know immoral but if they yeah, but did this something guy, cool claude dallas is like inexcusable man right but yeah we grew up like when we were little kids when that was all going on we thought he was badass which is kind of <laughs> disgusting man yeah, so wait, i won't write that one then no okay. right about that <laughs> right about that'd be like the end you know how in the end of your crockett book yeah you step back and look at the mythos of crockett yes. right like how how davy crockett kind of became remembered and you even talk about Davy Crockett generated, like adjusted for inflation, back to that oh, subject. Man. Davy Crockett generated more revenue in the 1950s than uh, 
G.I. Joe. Right. Superman. Barbie. Batman. Bigger business. I think. Right. I, I, I forget I, the numbers, but it's it was No, I, got, I wrote it down right here because I know I don't want to get you in trouble because you wrote the book a long time ago. Uh, it's all right. In today's dollars, three billion. In 19, I think it was like in, in 1955. And today's dollars would have been three billion like dollars. Like his name and the- Davy Crockett paraphernalia, fake coonskin caps. Mainly, yeah. every kid in America rode his bike around with a fake coonskin cap and on. little uh, lunch pails and um, you know, like rifles and stuff. Yeah, like the shit that comes out like when you when you go to McDonald's and you like there's like a Happy Meal offering and they're like in cahoots with a movie that came out like that sure. kind of garbage. Yeah, we call it merch these days. Yeah, yeah, licensed licensed merch. Crockett merch, right? In fact, you're talking about swinging back around. I mean, it's probably well, time let's to... get back to Claude Dallas. Do you think you're going to write the book or not? <laughs> uh, you I know, will read that book I, so fast it'll make your head. I know spin. you and and uh, about it, well, I don't know the market. Um, I, it's come up in my in my research before. That, you know, I like um, I like figures that are sort of controversial. You know, yeah, that's um, people still think yeah. he's badass. Yeah. If I ran into him, I'd want to, well, I don't want to say I'd want to wear a Claude Dallas shirt or something, you know? No. You might be a good way to get your ass kicked. <laughs> it depends on where you are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. What you were going to say about Crockett? I'm not ready to talk about Crockett yet, but we might as no. well throw it out there now that we... Well, I was going to say how I got to Crockett. Oh, um, yeah. So Please. how I got... Because how I, I didn't... Um, I mean, I, I grew up in California for, a, you know... A short period. My dad was from Louisiana, and he moved to California to be a doctor. Um, huh. And so what I was kind born. Of doctor? In, uh, he was a general practitioner um, in, in Ketchum, Idaho. Mm-hmm. After after we left California, but I was I was in there in the '60s during the Crockett craze. So I was kinda, he was he, were you guys in Ketchum when Hemingway killed himself in Ketchum? That was like '63, late, right? Later, later, later. Yeah, I grew up with the Hemingways and Jack and uh, Hemingway. Hemingway's eldest son was my French teacher, actually, and um, his daughter Marielle was a classmate of mine and. Um, private school that I went to, but before we yeah, got there, have you there, seen? Um, have you seen uh, Manhattan? No, uh, what's that movie? Was Dwight Yoakam, John Prine? Not Dwight oh, Yoakam, oh, John oh. Prine, Muriel Hemingway, and, and uh, John Mellencamp falling from grace. I haven't seen it. Dude, I better. It's Is it good? Yeah, it's real good. Go on. Um, anyway, we so we we moved. Uh, um, I was around the Crockett craze as a kid, and I just sort of you know you couldn't escape it. I mean, we lived, we lived you know, 20 minutes from Disneyland and it was all mm-hmm. happening. And then my dad moved us to Idaho, um, in 1970. And, you know, I was like, you sort of left that part behind, but much later, um, when I started, um, I, I had written this trucker book. So my, you know, I, I learned, I learned hunting and fishing from my dad and, um, and I decided to write this book, um, about trucker hunting. And as it turned out, you know, it was like a pretty niche, you know, is there not a lot of, um, it's not a great market for a book on chucker hunting. No, there's not a lot of, I mean, if you added up how many people self, when you ask someone like, what's what a, are you into? And they say chuckers. Yeah. Like what's a chucker anyway? You know, yeah, it was uh, 5,000. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, I could yeah, picture that yeah, being yeah. limiting. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, I wanted to, I, I had a lot of my first story I ever wrote, I was 13 years old and it, and it was about bird hunting and it had a chucker in it. So I was always, my dad was a big time chucker hunter. So I ended up writing this book. Like you were in the trap where it felt to you like very foundational. Right, exactly. Like if there's one thing everybody knows about, it's chuckers. <laughs> and, you know, he, I'm not kidding you. He's, he knew a lot about chuckers, and he knew a lot about he, – he was a great – I mean, he's still – he's out hunting, and my old man's in uh, Dillon, Montana, hunting ducks today. At, uh, I was telling Giannis, he, he'll be 88 on Monday, and he just hunts 
I mean, every single day if you can. Yeah, that's um, great. But so we end up, um, I end up writing this book about chucker hunting. And so I'm thinking, well, I need to, you know, what am I going to do with that? So I was trying to get an agent at the time. And uh, so I sent it to this agent in New York named Scott Waxman, who was a friend of friend. Yeah, no, I know and, that guy. Yeah. And so he, he calls me up after he read the book and he calls me and he's like, and this is a, you know, like in 19, 2000 or something, 2001, I've, you know, got a flip phone and I pull over and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just pull over, got cell coverage here. I'm out, I'm out, um, pheasant hunting. And he's like, he was, you know, he's a New Yorker. He's so really enamored with the romance of the Western idea, you know? So he's like, God, you wrote this great book about chucker hunting and you're out pheasant hunting. And he's like, you seem pretty into hunting. And I, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I just pull, you're kind of cramping my hunt right now, frankly. And, but you know, he said, listen, who's the greatest hunter in American history? And I was like, well, that's got to either be Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett, you know? And he said, well, why don't you go look and see if there's any, been a book recently about either of those guys? So there was a, somebody had written a book about Boone. I think it was Robert Morgan's name. Yeah. Um, had written a book about Boone, you know, kind of recently. And then I look and there hadn't been anything on Crockett in like 50 years, like a biography, right? Huh. So I called him back and I said, how about Crockett? You know? And he's like, Done. Yeah. Right. Boone's a way better hunter than Crockett. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Crockett was more talk about hunting, you know, um, <laughs> politician hunter. But, uh, you know, Crockett created the mystique of, I mean, listen, we're still talking about him today. And uh, so, but it worked out great. So the trucker hunting book led to a book about one of the great frontiersmen in American history. I was really happy with that. Yeah. You know. Okay. Your new book coming out. Okay. Here, here, this, I'm going to leave this up to you. This is going to be like chef's choice, author's choice. I want to. I want to talk. I want to do crash course on on Crockett, and here's why. Um, I've read everything there is to read about Boone. Oh yeah, right down yeah. like the Draper manuscripts, all that kind wow. of stuff. Right. I was uh, Crockett ignorant, and what started me down needing to know about Crockett was that I would talk about what sort of a shit talker Crockett was, and Texans get so mad. Real mad. <laughs> My friend Jesse Griffiths, it's like he turns kind of red if you say something bad about with anger if you say something bad about Crockett. So that led me to think he's a reasonable <laughs> dude. That led me to think that I needed to go read up on Crockett because I also knew that there was like a little bit of a mystery. Talk about a mystery. You want to talk about D.B. Cooper. All right. Well, did he die at the Alamo? At the Alamo. Well, did Crockett like go down in a hail of bullets fighting? <laughs> or. Yeah. As some people now think, was Crockett captured and and and, and surrendered? Well, right. And those your Texas friends do not want to hear anything about well, that, that's him what surrendering. Guys. That's what pisses uh, those guys off. Or, so then or I, getting away. You know. So I needed to know more about uh, that. Led me to wanting to know more about Crockett. And there's also the the connection is connected in people's heads. Is even like the organization, the conservation organization Boone and Crockett, right? Right. Which kind of bundles them together in a way that they don't. They should. They have no business being bundled together. I agree with that. I yeah. mean, they were only. I, I think. I mean, they're they're separated by a few decades anyway. Yeah. They, um, yeah. Like so, the height of Boone's adventures were around were around the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Well before. I mean, Crockett died at the Alamo in you know eighteen what thirty six, um, and you know I think that. But as far I, I love that question, you know, about whether or not what actually happened um, at the Alamo, because there's so much tied to, you know, Texans tie so much to that 
going down in a blaze of glory uh, mythology that is, it's almost, it's really interesting when you look at history, how, well, is that really what happened? Um, you know, a lot of the, uh, it's unfortunate, but a lot of the research suggests that, um, you know, he may well have just surrendered and been executed or, you know, and then they, you know, they were at that point, um, they were, the Mexicans were piling them up and making funeral pyres out of them, you know? And so nobody really wants to th- remember Crockett that way. You know, uh, you know, when they did the film, the Alamo, that was 10 years ago With now. Billy Bob. Billy Bob Thornton, it winds up being that the only man standing is Crockett. And it wasn't so much like he surrendered. He just got captured. Right. And so, you and, know. And then, and then he's very defiant. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shit talk, Santa Ana. Yeah, yeah. They, and, they, kill him with, they kill him with bayonets. Yeah. I mean, I had to make sure. I actually was very careful. That, that movie came out while I was in the f- finishing stages of the manuscript. And I, oh. I made sure not to watch. I mean, I didn't want Billy Bob in my head as like that this is who, <laughs> even though he's a great Crockett. But like, I'm sitting there trying to, you know. Get, I thought he did my, a great job. Me too. But like, I did, The movie's not a great movie, but no, he did a great job. He did a great, he steals the show as he always does. But I didn't want to have like my Crockett that was in my brain be overtaken by, you know, um, Carl Childers and Sling Blade or something, you know, with uh, hot biscuits and mustard. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that at Mm -hmm. all. (laughs) So I was like, so I watched it after, I watched it after um, I had finished the manuscript. And then I was like, okay, you know, damn, he kind of nails it. But as far as what actually happens there, you know, I think it's hard not to get swept up with the mythos, right? Because it's a better ending, you know, if he goes down firing at, you know, they're outnumbered, you know, 50 to one or whatever it is, maybe oh, more, more, more than that. Yeah. And so, um, all the, it, a lot of, uh, another part of the Alamo I didn't realize is the amount of, uh, being drunk and being sick. Oh yeah. <laughs> to win out well, in those days. Yeah. My God. I mean, you're, yeah, like, these guys are just in the pool like, of their own. They're either sick. like, yeah. they're either drunk or mortally ill. <laughs> right. They've got dysentery and malaria. You know, yeah. I mean, oh, it's, it's horrible. Right. So, all right. I was going to ask you if you wanted to talk about the Greeley expedition, which, dude, it's giving me nightmares, man. It should. Yeah. Um, so, we're, well, let's talk about Crockett first. All right, go. Then we'll talk about the Greeley expedition, which is your new, this is your forthcoming book. Right. So, uh, Labyrinth of Ice, the uh, triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition is coming out on December 3rd. Oh. Um, and it's, I'm really thrilled. Um, it's, it was a tremendous project, unbelievable story. It has basically everything that I I don't want. think it should come out in December. I know. <laughs> because to read about yeah. being this cold when it's cold out is, it's disturbing. It should be like a summer read, really. Yeah. You know? See, look, look at my thumb. I froze my thumb. Oh, you're wow. Yeah, there's a ton of frostbite in this book. Yeah, I froze my thumb and now the skin's coming off of it. Yeah. Well. And reading about these dudes, <laughs> these dudes foot, he freezes his feet so bad. Oh my god. He can't look and eventually his foot falls off. And they don't even tell him and he's still talking about how his foot tingles. Oh, oh that's dude. just like the horrible I, stuff in this so, book. And then they 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 like tether a fork to this guy's hand so that he can eat like by himself. They've dude, been feeding him, you know? It's I like, don't want to laugh. Yeah, we'll talk no, about, no. we'll talk about Labyrinth Ice, but here's the thing. You uh, always hear about, here's the thing, Arctic, like Arctic explorers and Antarctica explorers. Like, 
if you don't read it, you always hear like, oh, you know, they go there and they die. Like, oh, of course, you know. But to really understand this book, that such a good job of explaining like step by step by step, day by day by day, like what exactly goes wrong. And it's what goes wrong is complex. Very complex. And it, it's not just like, oh, you went somewhere real cold and died. It's like governmental failures upon governmental failures and like shit, like not understanding the climate well and not understanding like what's normal in the Arctic and abnormal in the Arctic. And oh, it's here. Yeah, it's Let's a talk about, series of unfortunate events. We'll get, Phil, you want a job? You never have nothing to do. Well, it depends. What's that? <laughs> that was a double negative. Are you going to send me to the Arctic? No. Okay, good. Uh, one, you didn't turn your clock on. Thank you. <laughs> Two, uh, you got to let us know when we need to switch to still have time to talk about Labyrinth of Ice after we talk more about Crockett. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm mostly, because you wrote you read the book a long time ago. Or you wrote the book a long time ago. So you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. But I'm just going to ask you about some things about Crockett. Right. Yeah. We'll, see, we'll see how well you hold up. Okay. I'm, I'm game. Because of, you know, uh, as a writer... If I wanted to do an interview and some guy wanted to talk about something I wrote a million years ago, I'd be pissed. I know. I'm, I'm, well, I'm a little bitter, but, but um, <laughs> I'm going to work around it. Uh, I actually was primed slightly because a couple of years ago, I was, um, I was a talking head on a History Channel show that um, actually Another was, one? was – Well, the, this one was exact – I was on the other side of – I was the person being interviewed. I was the Crockett guy oh. on a show called The Frontiersman, um, oh. the, the man who built America. The yeah, Frontiersman. I did that. I was one of the Boone guys. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. And so I was a Crockett guy. But, you know, it was one of those things where I was I was freaked out because the same – what you're talking about. I mean, I had written this book in, in 01 or 03 between 01 and 03, and then it came out in 05. And then here I'm being, you know, you're like Crockett guy, so let's hear about it. And I'm thinking, God, you know, I should probably um, go read my book. Yeah, you're like, is that what I, I said? Yeah. <laughs> is really? that what, is that what happened? <laughs> but anyway, I'm game. Yeah. Fire uh, I'll make it up if I don't remember. Okay. Anyway. I'll tell you some things that struck me about Crockett's biography that I learned about in your book. The fact that his old man, the pe- I gather people in general, were in the practice back then in the early 1800s, of hiring their children out as indentured servants to settle debts. Like, like you, you, buy, you borrow some money from a guy to buy some cows. The cows all drown in a river, say. And the guy's like, I need my money back. How about my boy comes and lives on your place for a year? Exactly. And roots out old stumps and shit in your field, and then we'll call it even. Right. And that's how this guy spent his childhood. I know. And the one that blew me away was so his his old man is always in debt. And Crockett was basically always in debt too. Um just the bad yeah, bad decisions it, and bad luck. Yeah, you know. And so his old man says, saying, you know, what you're talking about, he's like, uh, I owe this guy it's a bunch of money. So what if I send little Davy um on a like a cattle drive for 400 <laughs> miles that's going to last months, right? And Crockett's this little kid, you know, 14, I think he was 12. No, he's, yeah, he wasn't like 12 even a teenager. Old. And so he's like hoofing along, you know, p- prodding cattle um, and staying in, in like roadhouses and like watching men drinking and whoring and Crockett's, you know, just sitting there as a little kid. You're right. I mean, he, w- he was gone for months at a time. And um, – he gave me some ideas about like some stuff I should have probably done better with my son. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. You, know, he's not, you could have made a lot more money off that kid. Right. Like, but no, I, you're right. I mean, it was, an, it was such an amazing time where you would just do what, whatever you had to do. And it was not uncommon to, you know, sort of sell out your kid 
for I mean, I think at one point he was gone for two years. Yeah, that's I was going to mention that, that he like he his, he got in a bunch of trouble. He like smart. I can't remember what he did. He, he pissed his dad off, and his dad kicked his ass. Yeah, well, so he he kept he was playing hooky. Right, so he was playing hooky. Oh yeah, they yeah. said they were paying for him to go to school, but he wasn't going to school. He wasn't going to school. He would go off. He would head off to school and then just not go to school. But his old man at one point um, caught wind of this, uh, and he was like waiting for him on the on the road back to the house. And his dad like whooped up on him with a cane stick, you know. And then Crockett, he he uh, he let out for a little while there. <laughs> yeah, and, stay, and it, this is like when he's coming into, he's coming of age. Yeah, yeah. Stays gone so long. This is where it's like almost like a fake story. So here he is, he done all this like indentured servitude just to satisfy his dad's debts. His dad kicks his ass. He takes off for years, goes works odd jobs, like working on mule trains and wagon things. He and, almost got on a boat and, and sailed, you know, yeah, across try, the Atlantic. Tried yeah. to go to Europe. Yeah, tried to go to Europe. But his other boss wouldn't let him off the hook. Unbelievable. All this yeah. crazy stuff happens, but it's like out of it's out of like Homer's Odyssey, or it's kind of like a state. It's like the prod, it's like the prodigal son deal a little bit, where right Crockett goes back and he's he's been gone so long that he's able to go back and go into his family and not tell anyone who he is, right? And they actually and get away sister, with it for a minute, right? And he's he's sitting in a in a um like a they would call it a, it wouldn't be a cafe, but like a, you know, like a roadhouse. And his sister recognized him, it recognized him. And then they're like, oh my God, it's David, you know? And at that point he, he makes, he's really funny, you know, Crockett's very funny, but he makes some comment about how like, uh, yeah, I think I'd been gone long enough that my old man's ire was probably down by now, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, but he still remembered the caning. So, you know, he's like still looking over his shoulder a little bit. <laughs> and then went off, sells yeah. a bunch more debts. And then uh, another thing that, like, just kind of walking through, like, how this guy's life went is um, the degree to which when he sets out, like, in those days, fr- and, and we should establish, like, he's like a frontier character. Right. These are all, like, tra- like, like, early Bo- like Boone's family. These are, like, transient peoples. Absolutely. Explain how they're always yeah. like, living somewhere and then getting displaced and living somewhere and getting displaced. Right. So, you know, Crockett's life and many of the um, the frontier lifestyle, you know, we look at it sort of romantically, but in many cases, that was always about land. I mean, it still is, but, you know, it was always about land and then trying to make a go of it, right? And a lot of times things didn't work out. You know, in many cases, Crockett's um, family, uh, he would he would do he would start in on a project like they would build a grist mill, right? So they're going to grind flour and live on on the river, and you know, have a small plot, and you know, stake your claim and, and make a go of it. But the elements would just always mess with them, so they would have like a, you know. A flood, right? Takes out the grist mill, right? So now Crockett's got to go on, like, okay, now what? And he already borrowed right. all the money to build the thing. Right, right. So now he's, like, in debt again. So they would move, you know, just up and go, and then move on to the next thing. And it just became this perpetual um, westward movement. In fact, I mean, his his entire life was a westward move. And that's one of the things that, you know, I, I found interesting about, like, how he finally goes to the Alamo, because he was ultimately just still looking for more land. He was looking for a new start. Yeah. It was his like, whole life is about finding, making a new start. His old man too. And that was the thing I kind of <sighs> got. Cause I knew that with, with like, you know, several decades earlier with Boone where they'd always be going like on the American frontier, you'd always have people who were poor and yearning to like make their way. 
right? right. Yeah. Ca- like sort of capitalism at work. And they'd always be moving to a place that they kind of weren't supposed to be. And, and Boone's era was like, because the British had said, uh, the British had a lot of Indian allies west of the Appalachians. And the British said, we don't want any of our American colonists, like, don't go over there. Right. And what did the first thing that they do is they're like, well, I'm going to go over there. So I'll go over there and yeah. live and then I'll, they'll sort it out and they'll eventually sort it out in the end. And there's always <laughs> like people, um, and then it continues in Crockett's era, people like sort of jumping the gun. Like the Louisiana purchase happens and they haven't like <laughs> yeah. we did the purchase, but weren't really clear on what we right. bought. Right. And they're just already like people just like, immediately start moving but into like, these places being like, yeah, it'll work out. Yeah. Let's send Lewis and Clark and see how much we actually have. Yeah. And then people, yeah. people are like, well, dude, I already moved there. So yeah, right. Well, and in, in Crockett's case, it gets complicated too by the, um, you know, the fact that there were Indian peoples already living there. Oh, right. Yeah, so, man. you know, That's now, what I'm saying, like not even supposed to be there from that perspective too. Right. And one of the things I really found endearing about Crockett um, is his, you know, he he was a complicated figure, but so he was very sensitive to, um, even though he had spent some time, you know, under Andrew Jackson, like going off hunting up, you know, he used to put it that way, like hunting up Indians. Yeah, you you know? talk, yeah they, they use the term like he got sent down to Florida to during up. the Creek War to right. kill up, kill up some Indians, you kill know, and up you're like rogue Indians. Yeah. And so, but you know, even within that, I think he had a lot of reverence for um, the fact that, you know, he lived off the land, they lived off the land. He was for, you know, so I had firsthand knowledge of and learned from tribes that he encountered. And, you know, he, he was the only um, delegate, I believe. Yeah. In the, um, that voted against the Indian Removal Act. Yeah. Um, in, from Tennessee. So he like, paid a huge political price. Right. And so, you know, he got, he got that struggle. I mean, he understood that because he had spent his whole life, you know, in hard scrabble existence, just trying to eke out something. Um, and you know, I, so that's one of the things that I really found. Um, I connected with that element of him, you know, his persona. Uh, in his, I want to talk about his political career a little bit, but a thing about his political career is like kind of his sort of his foundational thing. Like if you imagine like universal healthcare, being like Obama's thing, right? <laughs> yeah. The Obamacare. Yeah. That was his thing. Crockett's thing as a congressman was to basically legitimize squatters. Right, because he was the chief squatter. <laughs> like to legitimize all those people that headed off in the wilderness and weren't really like clear where they were or who owned what. And they like built a cabin right. to like give them the land. And that was sort of his thing. That was like his thing. And he could never drive he it across the finish line. never pulled it off. And, you know, what I found really interesting about that is that through all that process, I mean, he was basically kind of representing the common man. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was a representative of the common man. Um, and you're right. I mean, he never really, he didn't, he was, he failed to pass basically any, um, any bills. <laughs> he was always out hunting. You know, he preferred um, he preferred hunting uh, to politicking, but he ended up being very good at politicking. Right. So he he was um, he he was able to create this kind of mystique and persona. And I, I mean, I call him like the first celebrity. I mean, you can maybe say that Benjamin Franklin was the first celebrity. Yeah. But you use a la- use a term. Yeah. You talk about it. That's why yeah. I feel it was interesting to look at his political career and then uh, look at Trump's political career. Can you talk about. <laughs> That wow. Crockett was the first American to be famous for being famous. Right. I mean, he, people knew, he, people <laughs> liked him because they just knew that he was famous. Right. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, at a time when, um, 
newspapers moved very slowly across the frontier, right? And information, the passage of information was done, you know, on horseback and through on riverboats, right? And so you've got a guy who was, it's profound. He was able to create such um, a frenzy and a mystique about himself. I mean, plays were written about him during his lifetime. He went he, to him. He went to a play watching a guy playing him, you know, and he's in the <laughs> audience and he's like, um, I, I, you know, I am, he, nobody, there was not the term celebrity at the time, but um, I don't believe, uh, but, you know, he was able to become such a commodity that people would line the streets when they heard he was coming and, you know, like reach out to try to touch him uh, as he went by, you know, and then he would be feted and he would be, you know, given all sorts of, uh, you know, honorary awards and he hadn't really ever done anything. You know, uh, I remind I, you of anyone? I, no, yeah, I, I want to back up a little bit to talk about when he kind of comes of age, and he's a young man, and he sets out very deliberately to find a wife. And it's a you, it's a really good way of like thinking about how frontier cultures worked and like frontier situations worked where people were so pragmatic. Yeah. There's a quote you have in the book that I've been using all the time. It's my new favorite quote. No one knows what the hell it means, but it's, um, you got to salt the cow if you want to catch the calf. Salt the cow to catch the calf. So like <laughs> they, these like pragmatic transactional relationships that would happen within frontier communities where it's like, right. I have a daughter. Um, yeah. This could probably fetch me a good, <laughs> if I play my cards right, I should be able to wrangle this daughter into a helpful son-in-law. Right. And he's like, I'm a helpful man. I got to do something. I'd sure like to get my hands on your daughter. And it's like, it's like you're, it's like you're buying cattle. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I, that term you use pragmatic is so appropriate and it's true. It's like, um, you know, what do you got? What, what am I going to give you for it? Um, you know, and uh, yeah, he was really, the, the whole salt the cow to catch the calf was funny because Crockett understood that if the mother, if he sweet talked the mom, right? He was flirting with the mom. He was flirting with the mom. You know, he was working the mom. And uh, and then, you know, she, he, he had to win her over uh you know, to assault the to cow, get his bride. to get the cap, to get his bride. Do you, um, they, you, you never, I, I was, a real miss you had in the book. Great. What were their sex lives? Were they promiscuous? <laughs> That's did, interesting. Like, that well, yeah, you, yeah. Does anyone talk, um, like, is there any way to know, like when they're courting and, and, and sneaking around in the woods and having like little chats, but plotting and figuring, <laughs> are they having sex or not? Uh, I'm guessing they're having sex. Yeah. So you think there, there, was, like, mean, pro, there was promiscuity on the frontier? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, almost certainly. You, you, listen, they don't. Crockett, like the, Crockett Lewis was, and Clark, there was a lot of promiscuity yeah. on that expedition. It, Crockett, you know, um, was very careful in crafting his own image. So he wrote his his own um, autobiography, like during his lifetime, knowing that it was going. I mean, he, and he was like, he really it was funny. He's like wanted it to be over two hundred pages. That was his. If it was two hundred pages, it was worthwhile. <laughs> it's like pretty random. Uh, but uh, I know that was know, the measure of a good book. Yeah, two oh two coming in hot. <laughs> so Crockett is like crafted this um, very carefully, and so you know he when he talks about like courtship, and he's a little coy about that stuff. And I think there was a kind oh, they of always propriety, are. So, yeah, you know? they like like yeah, well, Lewis and Clark. Yeah, they don't. It's just how they phrase it. They don't you know? intimate. You know, they don't, right. But then you later but learn. Children right? are happening. Yeah, they're like yeah. siring kids. And, <laughs> and, and that's the thing is like you could, there's like sort of this 1950s 
version of what frontiers people were like. Right. I mean, they're doing it in the woods, of course. Oh, yeah. All the and they're, time, all, they're all like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. But then you read <laughs> this proper. book, and it's like, man, these people are some greasy, oh, double dealing. Yeah. And like, in the, just in the same. Not like not patriotic, <laughs> not necessarily. Because like the, the, the idea of the U.S. is still taking shape. Right, yeah. They're kind of like, oh, uh, what country am I in? Sure. American? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> right. they, they got land? <laughs> well, don't you we'll take it. Don't you think it's just because survival trumped all that other stuff? Yeah, just like there was, yeah, but like drunkenness, yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of time to ponder patriotism when you're trying to figure out, like, how you're going to eat that night, you know? Yeah. Or if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be able to have shelter, um, yeah, it was tough. And he was kind of, uh, I was surprised too, is he was sort of on the fence about religion. Had a hard time with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I tried at times, a, tried at times to become more faithful. Struggled he, with his lack, struggled with his own lack of faith. Yeah, well, don't, don't some of us. Yeah, people do. Know. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, and he's honest about that too. Um, because, you know, I think at that, at that time, you know, it was very important to, I mean, faith was such an anchoring part of one's life on the frontier. I mean, you had that, you know, you had family faith, but yeah, he, he struggled with it. He didn't really talk too much about it. As a matter of fact, I mean, in terms of his own, he's sort of ambivalent. Yeah. But there's, ru- there were rumors that he was a flanderer and rumors <laughs> yeah, that he was a drunk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and rumors that he was like, you know, the greatest shot in the West, but uh, it's like, or, you know, what they called the West at the time. Uh, he And he did win, um, you know, he won some shooting competitions. That was a big badge of honor back then. You know, you would, you'd go to a shooting competition and like win a cow, you know, that, like, <laughs> <laughs> you come home leading a cow, a heifer, you know, and it's like, uh, okay, that, I mean, that, that's currency, you right. know. Yeah. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from 
regeneratively raised, grass-fed and finished cattle. Heart and soils. Unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. He did get involved in some really horrific Indian wars. Yeah. Like his life really changed after that. What's that Fort Sims? Fort Sims. Yeah. The Fort Mims. Mims. Fort Mims. The Fort Mims massacre. Oh, man. There's a scene. I don't know if you read that scene when there's a um, section that I almost can't read anymore when he recalls what happened there. Um, Because he, so they, they're retaliating for a massacre that had happened. Um, Crockett's in this small band of, um, you know, so called. Indian fighters. Yeah, but yeah, right. but I was I, I can't remember I wish I had it from me. The name of the Someone's got to look this up. Fort Mims. The, the Fort Mims was where the Creeks came in and massacred the whites. Right. And then the whites retaliated. This this is like t- total warfare. No kidding. Yeah, and Crockett was uh, on this um small squad that came in for retaliation. Yeah. And they they had been told that there were a bunch of Creek Indians at, at, at this. Actually, they had the Creek Indians had overtaken a fort and were still there. Yeah, and so there were women and children, and um, Crockett and a bunch of men came in, and he says, "You know, we shot them like dogs." And he, there's a really sort of horrific image that I can never shake. Um, the potato thing. Yeah, yeah. Talk about the potato thing. God. So there's like a potato cellar. And these, uh, they light, they shoot all the Indians and then they light these buildings on fire. And Crockett describes the, 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 they ended up eating the potatoes and he describes that the, the grease from these humans that has, um, basically melted from the fires dripped down and sort of seasoned these spuds. Base of the spuds. It's freaking brutal, man. There's some, all those massacres, you get like now, like in the wars we have now with the, the rules of engagement, you know, and we talk about how horrific 
war is now. I think well, here's the point I'm trying to get at. When you read about the American frontier, and it moved, right? At this point, the yeah, American yeah. frontier is, I mean, hell, nor, northern Florida is part of the American frontier yeah, at this time. The West. Uh, people love to talk about, oh, politicians are so crooked now. <laughs> or we're so violent now. Dude. Oh, man. The, the, the crookedness and atrocities that people would commit in those times to, like, just go into a village of people. Not like... Not like a, not like it's something that would get prosecuted for war crimes. It'd be celebrated. You'd go into a village and do total warfare, meaning you kill yeah. every man, woman, and child you can get your hands on, and then burn every piece of evidence that they ever existed, and eat the spuds, eat the spuds, yeah, and then go to I the mean, next town, right? And but I will say that Crockett, um, he seemed to authentically feel guilt about that and shaken, you know, and, oh, yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, who wouldn't be, but like in those days, yeah, I mean, we would, you, you think of it as just, you could be move on, you know, but we now know that, you know, with, with soldiers coming back from war and PTSD and, um, that, you know, any human who perpetrates that kind of violation on another human, no matter how you're going to justify it in your mind as being, you know, your job in the army, um, it's going to leave a mark. There's two contemporary westerns that come out recently, um, the Sisters Brothers, which is Joaquin Phoenix and, and John C. Riley, which I think is a phenomenal western, and then the Christian Bale one, Hostile West Stussy, Hostiles West Duty, West Duty. Uh, both of those movies, it's like every every like westerns always do for us. Like every generation gets their own Western. Hopefully. Okay. So you may like, like, you know, like in the seventies, a Western in the seventies felt like the seventies. Right. Yeah. Right. It was like, Oh, Butch Cassidy, Sundance kid. And it's like, Oh, they're smart talkers. They're like, yeah. they're, you know, detached, like the party. Right. Right. That's okay. what a Western's like. And now these two contemporary Westerns, what they're mostly about is the fact that everybody on the frontier had PTSD. Yeah. They're all just walking around like it's zombies. Like, it's like, yeah. But it's a revelatory. Yeah. Of course they did. You look, the, 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 like, the things that, and Crockett wasn't even like a hard driving, like, he was hired into the military to be a hunter, to right. shoot meat for the army. But he yeah. still had exposure to things that just like, things that no person sees. Right. It, it's in, you know. Um, like, burnt, like, piling up dead women and children in piles and torturing the piles of them. And it's just like. Yeah, I mean, like, I think no shit. Like it, you had to have been a mess. Or it, there were, I mean, maybe certain people have the ability to compartmentalize shit, you know, in ways that um, it's harder to do anymore. I don't know. But um, do you like? It has to be that there had like violence. Okay, here's the way you're looking at it. And I, this is the point I brought up before. Phil, how many dead people have you seen? <laughs> a lot. Uh, three. But, you know, they've all been made up and put in a no, casket. I'm not oh, that. I, mean, I was caskets. talking about going about your business and there's a dead person. <laughs> oh, zero. zero. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I've seen a handful. Um, Just freakishly. I was at an uh, old lady's uh, birthday party once and the caterer fell dead. I watched my dad die. Some car crash victims, airplane crash victims. But I feel like I've run into a lot of it. A lot of people, you can go to, you can live to be 30, 40 years old and not see... Dead people. 
But these guys, I'm surprised they can get around with all the dead people laying everywhere all the time. You're stepping over Like, them. everybody's yeah. dead and dying. And, and, and much younger age. Oh, you know? your wife? Oh, right, my right, wife died. Right. She was having a baby, and she's dead, and haul her out back, and... <laughs> Like, yeah, it, it's and true. Two of the mean, kids they, die. You could say that they are inured to it in some way, you know, maybe. Oh the death. The, yeah, it was it was all over the place. And um, that's what a lot of the, the, you know, I think Westerns don't sort of focus on, really. It's like the, you know, the impact of that kind of thing. Yeah, watch right. Sisters Brothers. I'm I'm psyched. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I just, I'm like the last person in the world to have just finished Deadwood, right? You know, oh, I heard yeah. there's a movies coming out, so I was like, I better catch up and watch the show. Sisters Brothers is phenomenal, but it didn't do well, and people are like, oh, it's the death of the Western. I don't know. I think Westerns are right again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's keep moving along. Yeah, uh, yeah. Crockett had bad malaria. Yeah, well, but they didn't, didn't know what the hell, they didn't know what the hell malaria was, <laughs> right? So a lot of times, that's why when you were, it's funny you were talking about earlier how everybody was you know just lying around either drunk or sick, and partly <laughs> or, they, you know or drunk and sick, drunk and sick, or drink <laughs> trying to drink uh, through your sickness, um, but. You know, everybody had malaria. Not everybody, but, you know, there wasn't really um, a remedy for malaria at the time. Um, in fact, that look that up. Um, when, you know, when did uh, m- uh, malaria medicine... When well, they called it? the bilious... B- bilious fevers. Yeah. The bilious fever. <laughs> you know, and so people are just... Um, He's out there trying to do his business. He's out there trying to hunt, out there trying to get food, trying to build cabins. And, you know, they're like shaking feverishly and not able to hold their food. And, you know. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because like he had been down in Florida, but he's also in Tennessee. So he's he's got he's got malaria. Then at times he's almost freezing to death. Right. But having a bout of malaria. Right. Like, like and, you know, still got it. And he's and out two there. Two feet of snow. Right. Yeah. It's funny. Trying you, to, think of it, you think of it as tropical, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it's, oh my God, some of those stories where he's like really sick and he's out in the woods um, and he breaks through the ice and he gets, you know, completely, um, basically he's walking around hypothermic and in order to, he's hypothermic and he's got malarial, <laughs> and bilious, from malaria. fevers. <laughs> like, but then he- Like the old one-two punch, right? Yeah. And so to stay warm, I love this one sequence when he- This he is like, in my notes. Oh, shimmies up this tree, like- multiple times and then he he will shimmy up to the top of the tree and which doesn't have a lot of branches on it and then he slides down it to create warmth on his body by the friction of sliding down this freaking tree yeah he's stuck out in the woods overnight and he says that he a hundred times climbed it and shimmied it to warm the inside of his legs arms and belly with the friction to not die he's like becomes that's a good trick man yeah i mean you might try it on one of your next hunts if you get frostbitten his uh he had a lot he had some like interesting hunting things the thing that surprised me too is uh you talk about this is that his uncle i think his mom's brother was out hunting once and sees something moving in the grapes see something moving it thinks it's a bear picking grapes shoots it and it's his neighbor <laughs> i love that's a great yeah and crockett says how his dad Put a silk handkerchief, how, how this came up, I don't know. Put a silk handkerchief into one side of him and drew it out the other side of him. Everyone thought the guy would die. It's like, yeah, flosses, like flosses the hole out with a silk handkerchief. The guy lives and no one quite knows what happened to him, but he got better and went away. Yeah, I love that uh, that scene. And I, it, like, but you want to think, like, when someone shoot, when a hunter shoots a person thinking it's game, I'm always like, not only did you think it was a deer, you thought it was a buck, 
and you thought you were aiming at its lungs. Right. So, but lo and behold, it was a person, <laughs> and now they're gut shot. Uh, yeah, Crockett was always great at the at the detail. I mean, you know, the image of that handkerchief passing through this the hole through <laughs> this guy's so abdomen is like man. awesome. Uh, he uh, he like he did kill a hell of a lot of bears. The, the numbers of black bears are pretty staggering, and it's like. At various times in his life, he'd try to get businesses going, but he'd always kind of resort to going. He he like would go hunting, market hunting. Yeah, and it was like he just that's what he liked to do. And so everything would go to shit. He'd take off and go hunting. Everything would go to shit. Take it off and go hunting. But he talks about he he found that what you do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he finds a guy who crocodile on one of his hunting expeditions finds a guy who has hired on with a landowner to dig stumps and roots. To grub out a field. And he's like, why are you doing this work of grubbing out the field? The guy says, I don't have any money. I can't buy any meat for my family. So Crockett talks the dude into working for him, packing bear meat and salting it. And they go off that day and they kill four bears. They hunt for another week and they kill 17 more bears. And as payment for the week's bear hunting labor... Crockett sends the man home with 1,000 pounds of bear meat, which the man and his family then ate for a year. At one point, Crockett and his hunting partners go out in the fall, kill 58 bears. The bears hibernate. They come out in the spring. They go back out and kill 47. So that year, he killed 105 black bears. And you point out, as much as like Crockett was prone to a little bullshit— you say that it was confirmed by a host of his contemporaries that they had had a hell of a year that year. Yeah, banner and bear year. 105 black bears. What's the most that have ever been taken in the state of Montana in one year? That's got to be – that's a great question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I, – I, But, I mean, he, if there was – yeah, he would have put a big dent in the – So, yeah. He put a big dent in the contemporary <laughs> annual harvest of Tennessee. Yeah, and I always wondered, you know – to what extent, obviously, Crockett was um, a, tall, a teller of tall tales. No, but Boone, Boone backs that up. Boone, yeah. Boone kill, they, they'd kill 100 bears a year. I mean, there were a lot of bears running around. And these yeah, guys Boone are, talks about killing 13 in a day once with a hound. But you got to yeah, remember, yeah. these guys hunted with hounds. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, like cr- large packs of hounds. Yeah. I mean, very effective. Uh, uh, the, Crockett also claims uh, to kill a bear with his knife. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is, um, well, he. I think he shoots it, and then he has it cornered. Yeah, it's pretty believable. Cre- crev- like his, his version of it's pretty believable. Yeah, he gets it and it cripples it up, and it gets into a hole, and he turns into a skirmish. Yeah. And- but he, he, it's funny you were talking about the the uh, how he was rooting out those stumps. He always had these these phrases that are kind of memorable, but you never know what the hell he's exactly talking about. Like he, he they're rubbing, rubbing out his, a field, rubbing out a field. But then he said, "Yeah, you got to root hog or die." <laughs> like, okay. I don't yeah, that means. Yes, you do. That's yeah. good life advice. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start telling people, you got to root hog or die. Son. You got to salt the cow if you want to catch the calf. <laughs> Son, root hog or die. So the guy gets it. Uh, Crockett eventually gets into politics. Right. Accidentally. Like Disaster. people float his name kind of as a joke. Yeah. He runs with it. And it brings up this weird thing where people like Crockett because he's a hellbilly. <laughs> he's a cane. Yeah. He's from the canes. Gentleman from the cane. Yeah, like yeah. the cane breaks of yeah. the like the frontier. He's like a bear hunter. And he had to play that up right, with his constituency. Like, because he's campaigning on the frontier. And people wanted to see, like, this frontier sensibility, this, like, this, like great hunter. And he kind of more cared about 
Like he would buy votes by buying jugs of whiskey. Oh, I love that. One of his great techniques was to, you know, he would go, you know, did they call them stump speeches? They actually stood on stumps, you know, and, and, and talked to whoever would listen to him. And, uh, yeah, he would, he would always let the other person go first. Um, and then he'd listen to whatever one, one time he just let the other guy go first. And then he like basically recited his whole speech back again. And then, but, and then during that time he was, um, handing out plugs of tobacco, chewing tobacco and whiskey. And, you know, then basically they was, saying like, here, vote for me. <laughs> he was buying votes. It. I'll give you this and you <laughs> vote for me. Yes. It sounds <laughs> like quid pro quo, but, uh, you know, he was good at it. He got it. He understood people and they liked him, you know, yeah. like he was a likable guy and he was a hilarious storyteller and he, you know, he would build on the, um, he would elaborate, and I'm sure that he was exaggerating some of the time, but he also understood human nature, and then they wanted to be told a story. They didn't want to be told, I don't know, what he was going to do for him exactly. I don't think he knew what he was going to do for him exactly. And did nothing. <laughs> he didn't. Tried. <laughs> right. But uh, it was interesting, because you talk about how it was hard to get around on the frontier back then, and so when two people, two opponents are campaigning, like they're campaigning for a congressional seat. It made sense they had to travel in room together. Together. So it's like Hillary Clinton <laughs> and Donald Trump Chilling. traveling together and rooming together at night and arranging <laughs> campaign speeches to then get up in the morning, have breakfast together, go right. tear each other a new one <laughs> in front of an audience, and then move on to the next town. Right. And there's like and, and you talk about the Crockett. He always liked to go second because he was memorable and funny and he just wanted to leave people with the impression. One more. Yeah. yeah, and it was talking about that one time he's traveling with this guy and he, he always goes second, so he listens to him. And eventually he has to go first. And he gets nervous. So what he does is he'd heard his opponent's speech so many times. Yep. He just gives the opponent's speech and leaves the guy <laughs> with nothing to say because it's like his recited stump speech and, and Crockett had already given it. Right, he doesn't have a backup <laughs> speech, you know, that he can just go to. And he talks to, like, the thing that Crockett did that was kind of funny is he's campaigning, he's campaigning against and traveling with a guy who's lost a leg. And the guy has a wooden peg. <laughs> and they go and they're staying uh, in the guy's house. That's brutal. And Crockett takes a wooden chair and at night mimics the sound <laughs> of the wooden, the guy with the wooden leg, mimics the sound of him walking around. And goes and bangs that. on the the daughter, the farmer's daughter's <laughs> bedroom door. Clunk, clunk, clunk. She gets upset and starts yelling, and he makes the clunk, 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 him. with his wooden chair back to his room to create the impression in the farmer's mind that the man who was missing a leg had tried to sneak into his daughter's bedroom. And, and, and stoop his daughter. <laughs> yeah, it's he, Crockett was diabolical <laughs> like that, you like know? The craziest so, stuff. Yeah, we talk about how, um, you know, cutthroat politics are now. I mean, these guys were just... They were, they were terrible. They were he, terrible. Yeah, he had to play the bumpkin. Right. But then, like, everybody who, he played the bumpkin and railed against, the, like, hated the rich. Yet he so badly wanted to be rich. He wanted to be rich bad. Yeah, I mean. Which is like, everybody that, like, conundrum. most people are in that situation, right? Like, when you're poor, you're like, ah, it's rich people. But like, so if I like, right. get, so you're telling me right now, if I like was like, you know what, dude, here, here's a few million bucks. You'd be like, I don't want it. I hate right. the rich. You gotta earn oh, your dude, you'd take it so fast. Right now. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think he, he was, uh, Crockett was probably torn by that a lot because, you know, he, 
I think what he wanted more was to just be, to have the freedom to not always be behind, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people want. Just to not be in debt. To not be in debt, just, you know, all the time and have that chasing you, you know? And so he did what he could, you know? And if that meant like reshaping the way his um, persona was, he would, you know, he was a chameleon. He was just good at being what people wanted to see. Um, yeah, I but uh, I think he did want, I, I don't know that he wanted like, Finery, you know, because yeah, he seemed happiest. You. you know, he didn't want to. That's true. Wear when you gave him, clothes. when you gave, when you gave him an opportunity to do what he really wanted to do, he'd vanish in the woods and go hunting. He's like, get my gun and my dogs. I'm going out. You yeah. know, it's uh, kind of yeah. a, a sad part of his political career is he gets to Washington and they turn his, uh, they turn his hillbilly stuff against him. Like he's at some <laughs> formal dinner, and a waiter goes to clear his plate, yeah. and he like did or didn't. It's think that the waiter was trying to steal his food, <laughs> and they had finger bowls back then. Right, well, they still use it. Yeah, and he he got thirsty and was drinking every out of the finger bowl. And, and he's and, like, "Yeah, don't jack my meal." And the guy's just trying to you know <laughs> tra- take his plate away. And he's like, "Give me that back, man! I haven't eaten. Yeah, steal uh, my food." Right, and so they really <laughs> turned it against him, and that he was like in the finer circles. It was like he was a buffoon, and it hurt his feelings, man. Yeah, I mean, you could see that if you, if you you know nobody wants to be um, made to look like you're not appropriate or that you're not um, you don't have the right clothes or that you you don't have um, good manners you know. But then they were brutal too because they would just write about it in in the papers and say you know the bumpkin buffoon Crockett who tried to drink out of the finger bowl you know and then it like totally ruins your uh, your image. Yeah. And he was all about, like, building image. And it made you less effective. Right. In doing the job of, like, trying to pass laws, which yeah. he never figured out. No. Terrible politician. I had a thing happen to me. I was in a I was in Manhattan, and I was with my wife, and we went to a restaurant. We were in a big fight. I can't remember what we fighting about. She was super mad at me. And I went, and it was like, a ba- there was a bathroom. I wish I could remember. She'd, she'd know the name of this restaurant. There's a bathroom where there's a... Uh, Big circular sink. The right, right, it's like a fountain. Right, right. And the fountain is communal. It's co-ed fountain. But off the fountain is the men's room and the women's room. But I was a little drunk. And I'm in, and I'm in a fight. I'm drunk and in a fight with my wife. And I come down and I think that I'm in the, the men's room. <laughs> you're not. I'm at the fountain. <laughs> oh, man, you're urinating yeah. in the fountain. Urinating in the fountain. So a woman comes in and they're aghast. And I had a white, I had a sweater on and a t-shirt. And so she comes in and she's got like, oh my God, what's going on? And scurries into the woman's room. And then I'm like, I'm going to get found out. So I had a sweater on and a t-shirt and I took my sweater off. So I look, so she's like, he's got a green sweater. They wouldn't have me pegged, but my wife's so mad at me. I get back to the table and I can't be like, you'll never guess what happened. No, you want to tell her. And so I'm sitting there in my t-shirt waiting at any minute to someone come up and strangle me for having like, you know, what have you done? Yeah. For having exposed myself. And it's like, normally I come up and be like, you'll never guess what happened. But cause we were in a fight, I couldn't really bring it up. And then also, and, and, and also, we were at a thing one time, and uh, we, we were having, they had finger bowls, but they also had these like little things you dip bu- crab into butter. Right. Ramekins, those are In called. my mind, I was drinking the butter. Right. 
My wife still, she still holds to this day that I was drinking the contents of the finger bowl. Oh, you're but I was like, no, I was drinking the other little container, which was the butter container. And sure, you shouldn't drink the butter, but I was drinking the butter. <laughs> Don't say I was drinking the finger bowl. So when I got into the finger bowl about right. Crockett, it really like hit a personal note. I bet. So you're you're uh, a bumpkin too. In a <laughs> hit a personal note. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on to, oh, quick thing. Uh we don't need to really talk about it too much, but it's interesting too, like how conflicted Crockett was. Like, he, like Jackson, um, Jackson wanted to get all this money. He wanted five hundred thousand dollars because he wanted to relocate Cherokee, right? Chocks all these people. He yeah. wanted to relocate them out west. Everyone was just in support of it on the frontier, and Crockett took a massive political hit and thought it was immoral to move them. Yeah, he had slaves, man. Yeah, um, he had slaves he earlier. Like earlier. Gave, yeah, like someone yeah. gave his family some slaves or right. something. But so you think that's a, um, you no. would call it a contradiction? In not his a contradiction. Character? Listen, man, mm-hmm. I, 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 I really try not to like do the thing that everyone does these days, which is take like contemporary notions and engage mm-hmm. people's, it's a mess. Right. You, you'll never get anywhere with that stuff. Right, but I mean, I it's think- It's just surprising. Yeah, it is surprising. And it goes back though to his, um, I think, you know, maybe some guilt about- um, the Indians that he had previously killed, having firsthand experience with the way that um, the Indians lived, and he was trying to live basically off the land too. And then you know you've got this guy who it was also about he he freaking hated Jackson man he didn't like that guy and you know here so he he was kind of Jackson contrary. Jackson snubbed him during the Creek War right and you know Crockett wasn't able to rise up through the ranks and then they also they were just contentious like. In in the halls of Congress, they were contentious all the time. Crockett like made nicknames for him and old, called him Old Hickory and well, a lot of old people Hickory called him was, Old Hickory. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, he would how like tough he was. Spins on it. Yeah, yeah. But so Crockett, I think, just you know, wanted to be contrary. Also, at that point, he's like, you know, if this is what he's going for, I'm gonna. But but I think he authentically saw the um, that moving people from their homes and displacing them, you know, hundreds of miles away um, was wrong. And he doubled down on it. Yeah. Like he, you know. That was the end though. Yeah. Politically, like ends his political career. And then later he's like, I would do the same thing today. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't care who brought it up. Yeah. He says, you know, um, exactly. I would cast that vote. It was basically like vote your conscience, you know, like the old Ross Perot vote your conscience. Yeah. So he, he wins a congressional term. Uh, then winds up losing a congressional term. And as he, when he campaigned, it's, here's another thing about how like how he'd stick to his word. When he was campaigning, he said, if I don't win, I'm going to Texas. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. He says, y- y'all can go to hell and I'm going to Texas. And he loses. And what does he do? He just strikes out for Texas. Rounds man. up a bunch of his buddies and he's famous. Right. And he starts riding to Texas. And every town he comes to, they know he's coming. And they're hooting and hollering. And he winds up like thinking it's going to be the promised land in Texas. And very quickly, winds up at a little old place called the Alamo. <laughs> yeah, he he bumbles into the Alamo. Bumbles. Into I mean, it. the guy uh, was not like seeking uh, seeking battle no, or was, seeking. He was seeking. He wanted like good hunting and a bunch of land. Right, right. And so you know, it was one of those really bad. Um, it was bad timing for Crockett. It may be great timing for his um, legacy. You know, uh, immortality. Mm-hmm. But it was bad timing um, in terms of like being able to. Get it, you know, 40 acres. A connection I saw between the establishment of the Republic of Texas and the Alamo and everything, what what brought, and I, and I read a lot of books about the frontier, but a connection I didn't realize until I read your book um, was the settlement practices that in going to Texas, 
and getting in trouble with the Mexicans and the Mexican army really wasn't like that different than what his parents had done and what he'd always done. Because earlier I brought up this idea that like, you're, you're always trying to find the free ground. Right. And so you're always moving to places where it's not like you're sorting the details out later. Right. And somebody uh, is always almost always already there. Yeah. And someone's um, always like, yeah, you really shouldn't go over there. Right. And you're like, yeah, you know, I'll figure it out. Like the Brits are like, we don't want you over there. And then tribes like, you know, that we conceded, like we made a deal and this is our land and you can't come here. And you're like, yeah, I'll go figure it out. And then you like stake a claim, but you never really file it. And then later, you know, yeah. some guys like, but I stuck, I did it too. And you have a big fight and one of you moves and it goes on and on and on. And so it wasn't like, it probably didn't feel that weird to him to be no. going to Texas when you're sort of like aware of the idea that there is a government that's saying, this is my ground. Right. And, and you're like, and, ah, I'll sort it out later. Right. And we'll figure it out when we get there. And we may or may not, there may not even be boundaries. There may not be, you know, ownership is sort of um, questionable, right? Let's just figure it out. Um, though, you know, so when he ends up at, at the Alamo, that's the point where you have to decide, like, how you feel about Crockett, right? I mean, we started there. But that I think, you know, you either think, here's a guy who bumbled into a, a skirmish that he had no knowledge of, really. You know, he just, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, or you believe you can convince yourself he, like, to believe. He, like, went there to die for an ideal. You, many people have convinced themselves that that's what happened, that he went there to die for an ideal for the, you know, American dream. And it's like- It wasn't even really the American dream yet. No, we, but we, we like to call it the American dream, right? It was Land, like- Land, opportunity. Yeah, but you read about a lot of those guys were kind of in like, America, sure, but they wanted like Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were also wanting to, um, you know, be sort of separate from everybody else, right? Yeah. Um, they weren't like, by God, we're taking the American flag. It was a little bit of that, but it was a lot of it was just kind of like what they wanted. Right. Like land, yeah. land, and land. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, they all die at the Alamo. Santa Ana comes in. He says, this is interesting, too, about uh, the death is... After it doesn't take long, and General Santa Ana of the leading the Mexican army says they try to be like, well, let, let's talk. He's like, at this point, there is no talking. Right, you will all die. And by the way, it's tomorrow morning. Yeah, and we're coming. And there's not like, there is no chat. Right, and I, I was, they put up a flag that says you all die, and then mm -hmm. they all died. Well, right, and I, there's some really haunting moments, you know, when you slow it down and you and you think about being inside the Alamo. And looking out, you know, through through the, the logs and slats and you see, you know, maybe 3,000 Mexican troops well-armed on horseback and you're, you know, a couple hundred guys in this um, enclosure going. And, you know, you're basically, it's over. I mean, there's no, like you said, there's no more discussion. They're coming. And it, it happens so fast, you know, like it's, it's over in, I mean, maybe an hour. Yeah. You know? And then it's just like they're swarmed upon the, I, these images I always had were like of them throwing those ladders up and just coming wave after wave after wave, um, you know, with muskets and, and bayonets and just impaling them, you know, it's brutal. It's brutal. And then Sam Houston destroys Santa Ana's army in 19 minutes. 
Well, it was, it was the era of retaliation, <laughs> right? So then, yeah. okay, watch yeah, this transition. Yeah, yeah. 50 years goes by, and we're trying to settle. 50 years goes by, yeah. and our, our young country is like, hey, man, we should see what's going on in the Arctic. <laughs> Let's head north. Yeah. yeah. Explain the quest for farthest north. Well, so it's really interesting. People, I mean, at the time, um, let's say, you know, 1850s and, you know, Franklin and nobody really- Let me say something to people yeah. who are a little slow to the yeah. punch. All right. We've moved on to Labyrinth <laughs> of Ice, <laughs> right. the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, which is Buddy Levy's brand new book. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So what I found really compelling, and I've, I've been drawn to Arctic stories um, for a while. Uh, I mean, you know, ever since probably, I mean, n great North stories. I mean, I, you probably grew up reading Jack London too. And Yeah, uh, I like know, that. The, I've, never been into the, I've never been into the organized explorations. Yeah. Like I'm not even a big Lewis and Clark guy. Uh, I like the freewheeling individuals yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, in this case, what was so interesting is that no one knew. So the, my book is set, this book, Labyrinth Ice, is set in 1881. And at that time, no one had been to the North Pole. No one even knew. We, there was belief that the North Pole was a, a ring of ice uh, circumnavigating the pole. And, with, and once you broke through this layer of ice, the, the seas were actually tropical. That's how confused people were. That's what they thought so, happened. That's what well, that's what they thought that that's what they thought was up there. Um, I mean, now listen. Uh, so the British had been going up, and Franklin, you know, was trying to make the Northwest Passage much earlier. But essentially, you know, there was so much unknown um, that the, the the you know higher northern latitudes were speculated about what actually existed up there. Now they had been. Um, you know, there was, for some reason, people always want to go farther, higher, right? So this farthest north Holy Grail became something that was a, a, a big patriotic badge of honor. You know, you were the, you'd gone farther north than any other humans had ever been. But well, Greeley and his guys go up to the so it's, Arctic. It's him and 25 guys. Right. So it's really a, a strange um, group of people, you know, in a way, because they Greeley had been running the signal, the army signal corps. Uh, and he, so he was a guy who uh, had put up telegraph lines all across the American Southwest, but he had a fascination with, um, the Arctic and he'd read all about, um, you know, previous Arctic expeditions. He'd read about Franklin. He'd read about, um, Kane and Beaumont and these people who, these Brits who had been up North and come back and, um, survived and written um, diaries and, and accounts and journals. He had all those. So he ends up going up to the, um, he was part of this thing called the International Polar Year. And so there was this scientific element to it. So they send 25 American soldiers from the, um, basically from the Signal Corps. They were plucked out of the American Southwest. Many of them had spent hard winters in the Southwest, but they'd never been to, no, none of these men had ever been to the Arctic. Yeah, and these guys had been like a little bit involved in the punitive expeditions 
Yeah. The, after the Custer massacre, right, so the Nez Perce cleaning War. Cleaning up and, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Brainerd, one of those guys, had had um, been um, under um, Miles Nelson. Nelson Miles, yeah, yeah, Nelson Miles. I can Miles Nelson. Nelson Miles. And uh, so, I mean, they were tough, hardened men who were good at living in the outdoors, but they had no idea what they were getting into. Um a couple of things separate this expedition from others like it. And one is that they, so they were part of this, there was a three-pronged reason that they went there. One was to um, create the farthest north weather station in the world. And there were, it was in concert with like 14 other countries. Uh, this Austrian guy created this thing called the first international polar year. So they're going to go up there and build a, um, a, basically a weather station, a longhouse. They, they brought all the wood for it. And then they were also going to try to find um, what had happened to this ship called the Jeanette, which Hampton Sides writes about in um, uh, in the Kingdom of Ice. Um, so it had two years ago, two years before, the Jeanette had gone missing, never to be heard of, right? So Greeley is going up north to set up a weather station, try to see if there's anything going on with this... Um, Jeanette and DeLong, the captain, whom he knew, and then to try to break the record of farthest north. That was like his secret goal. He didn't really talk about it much, but in his diaries, he does. Yeah, and they're basically like going out of New York and take a left. Right, I mean, and you wind up up between Ellesmere Island and Greenland, and, and, and uh, yeah, the top and, of Greenland, the top of Greenland. So it's incredible if you know the journey up there um, is harrowing. It you know what ends up happening is they set up a a longhouse, sixty five foot longhouse, you know, twenty five oh, feet wide. I, I, we I gotta, we gotta explain something because yeah. this is like part of like how everything goes bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's important to point out. Yeah, they get yeah. dropped off right. And yeah. it's an unseasonably warm summer, and they sail up and drop them off way the hell up. And they're like, hey, we'll come back next summer. Right. Well, the plan is, so they get <laughs> dropped off with all this freaking lumber and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of food. And they're, they're taken up in a, in a steamship called the Proteus, right? And so then they're dropped off, and the plan is, okay, we'll, come, we'll resupply you next summer. Uh, and if we don't come back next summer, we'll, we'll definitely come the next <laughs> summer after that. We promise. <laughs> <laughs> But what's so weird is that, like, you're right. So th- it's like the warmest, the clear, the clearest. There's all this channel that goes up through, you know, it goes through the Lincoln, uh, or, or pardon me, it goes through like the, the Smith Sound, the Cane Basin, um, the Lincoln or the Lincoln Seas above Melville Bay, Melville Bay, and you get up and where it narrows in the Smith Sound, and then it opens up into the Kennedy Channel, and they're in this little um, spit, this little in, uh, inlet called Lady Franklin Bay, and right. So the plan is that. They're going to build this longhouse, do a bunch of science, take, you know, hundreds of readings a day. Um, eat seals and polar bears. Eat seals and bears and, uh, and musk oxen. And but very good musk oxen hunting up there, by the way, then. Yeah, um, they do pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, let's see. When the weather's good, because it's going to be dark for like 130 consecutive days, uh, when the weather gets better, we'll go and try to break the record of farthest north or even go to the North Pole, if we can pull that off. Um and surely they'll come and resupply us. And, you know, that's when, what I love about this story is that there's this incredible dichotomy between the, you know, the first two, like they spend Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? And it's, 
you know, it's, they've got the aurora, aurora borealis is going on. Oh, it's just like fireworks every night, right? And they're, they've got tons and tons of food and Christmas parties, I Thanksgiving mean, parties. Elaborate meals. They're doing shooting competitions out on the ice. They're smoking cigars. They're just living large, man. They're eating lobster. They brought all the shit, right? And, um, and you realize, like, well, so then... Everything looks good, you know. They're they're going on expeditions. They they're got, breaking yeah, they farthest got, north. They got farthest. They north. got farthest north. They bag that sucker. They that, got farthest west. Yeah. Then he sends a couple guys, and they go way west. And All they, the west. They map out Ellesmere Island and they're, make some discoveries. They're and, waving the flag. They're like, you know what? We're crushing this. And then the ice starts to form in the Kennedy channel right and there and the, I love the fact that they they spend a great deal of time like looking out at the ice because. Yeah, like every day they send someone to climb the hill to look for the boat. Climb up there and it's like, (laughs) is the boat coming, you know? And then they, so the boat doesn't come the first summer. And then they're like, ooh, well, that's, you know, we got a shit ton of It'll make it even better when it comes next summer. Yeah, we'll be really psyched and write letters home, honey. Uh, But, you know, then it starts to get kind of grim. And Greeley, of course, what I love about him is he's not idle. So he's like, okay, well, let's keep foraying and let's try to even go farther north. And he sends, you know, he's got these two Greenlandic, um, their yeah, dog those drivers guys are interesting, man. Like Greenlandic Eskimos, right? So they Eskimo picked them Fred, up. Eskimo Fred, and um, Jans. and Jens Christensen. Yeah, they're really cool. And these some, guys, those guys tear it up. Oh my god, on they're, the hunt, they're badass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the, what you know, they when they had gone up, they picked up. Um, Greeley knew that they needed um, dogs and Greenlandic drivers uh, who could handle them, and so he he negotiates to, to pay these guys and he enlists them into the army, and uh, and then. They, so they, they go on, they're, they're waiting for- Those guys want to be kind of like heroes. Oh my God. Yeah. I was so, I mean, I, you know, I get sad for Eskimo Fred when I think about him. Um, like, I don't want to really sort of spoiler- alert No, just this, go you ahead. Know, you know, well, um, so Eskimo Fred and J- Jens Christensen are also, are they're, they're not only good dog drivers, they're good shots and they're really good in kayaks, right? So, you know, the Greenlandic peoples, the Inuit and the Etah, these guys are from like, they're called Etah. Um, like a and, blue-eyed, they used to, in the old well, days, didn't they, didn't they, didn't they call like that. a blue-eyed Eskimo or something like that in the old days? I'm not going to say that. <laughs> no, I'm no, saying really? in oh, those well, days, wasn't so, that like yeah. a thing? I mean, yeah, because, I mean, you know, when you think about um, interaction with, um, you know, uh, Europeans, um, you know, but uh, no, I haven't heard the expression, actually. Because I thought Stephenson, eh, never mind. Yeah, yeah. You know the Arctic Explorer yeah. Stephenson? Yeah, but did he I, I thought he was always trying to... And I think that, that would, we'll save that for yeah, Stephenson yeah. an expert. Right. Never mind. Go on. <laughs> bring bring them next. Um, but so you know they've got they've got these Greenland um, sled dog drivers, and you know Greeley keeps sending out um, forays. I, that's part of the story that I really loved is how you know they go on these expeditions and they're they're burly man. They're like going out for. 60 days in, you know, minus average, minus 50 degree temperatures, um, carrying, and they, they've got these elaborate sort of, um, stoves that burn, um, you know, these fuels that they're able to like in in severe winds, they're able to like strike a fire in these like funnel stoves and then, you know, heat up like frozen stew meat that they've got brought along and and, burn like fuel and seal oil and and boot soles. Yeah. And and shit. And so then they'll be like, go out, you know, and come back maybe two months later. Right. So it'd be two guys, Brainerd and, um, 
Lockwood, these are two of the main expeditionary guys, and then and then um, Eskimo Fred and Jens. Jens or Jens, you tell me. Yeah, I don't Jens Christensen, Giannis, Janus, Jens, who knows? <laughs> but so you know, this is why it's called the triumph, the triumphant and tragic, because the first part of this, um, there's a ton of triumph to me, you know, um, in what humans are able to achieve in terms of um, teamwork and being out you know, for days and days on end, the things that you guys do, you know, like, yeah, but it's not even comparable, man. These guys have gone for years pre Gore-Tex, you know? Um, and they're, you know, and Greeley, like they're actually testing out all sorts of, because Greeley preferred wool and oil skin to seal skin. Cause he got really, I mean, he tried to wear what the um, native peoples were wearing, but he found it really um, clammy. I mean, they didn't, he didn't breathe. So he was using, he would use thick, like boiled wool and then, oil skin, kind of like drover coat stuff yeah. that on the outside, right? Um, can I talk better. about their sleeping bags real quick? Oh my God. They the slept Buffalo in, hide sleeping bags? Yeah, they had buffalo hide sleeping bags and dog hair sleep. They would make sleeping bags out of dogs. Yeah. And it was what's funny is because I, I know a little bit of that world well, and they were gone. So they went up in 81. Yeah. It, it was, was interesting because the last, sort of like the last big organized slaughter of buffalo yeah. Was in Miles City. This is your area. Named after General Miles. Was in Miles City in the winter of 81, 82. Was the last big commercial slaughter. And it was funny that these guys are gone and they got all this, they got all these coats and sleeping bags and stuff made out of these hides and yeah. they're gone and probably unbeknownst to them, they have no the idea. animals are like, they're sleeping in sleeping bags made from an animal that is simultaneously. <laughs> tiptoeing precariously close to extinction. Unbelievable. And, and the president it, dies. Right. Oh, my God. So it, that's what, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, I love that that idea that they have no idea that, you know, while we're out here, um, the communication was so, you know, there's nothing. They build cairns and and uh, leave notes in huge rock cairns. But, yeah, so the sleeping bags were, were awesome because these guys, they have three-man uh, sleeping bags. So they, it was so cold that if you weren't like nut to butt with your bro, you're probably going to freeze to death. So they have three man Buffalo high sleeping bags and they all climb in and just snuggle, you know, at night for months on end, it, you know, um, and then get out of them and, you know, like go on trek for 20 miles over the ice broken ground. I mean, you know, it's not flat there either. I mean, it's very, there's mountains around there that are up to 4,000, 5,000 feet, 4,000 feet. So these guys are just like, you know, moving along. <laughs> it's, it's incredible the kind of um, deprivation they could endure. Yeah. How, how are they carrying that gear? Because buffalo hides are heavy. Fucking heavy. And so they have, um, they have like these really cool sledges. Well, that, we haven't established you know, why they need to split. Oh. So talk about why they need to split and then how they move. Because so far they haven't moved. Oh, 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 yeah. But I'm talking, so while Greeley, but before the, okay, so let's just back it up for a second. So first winter, uh, they have a great time, party, uh, go back farthest north, everything's cool. Uh, then the summer, your rescue or resupply doesn't happen. 
Greeley still keeps sending out, um, you know, forays to try to go they'll discover new lands in Greenland, which he does. And they're going off at this point on these sledges with like two men driving the sledge uh, or one man driving the sledge. And then they're carrying a whole bunch of their gear on these sledges and the dogs are hauling it. But there's a lot of time in the drag ropes, too, because they get stuck and the ice is breakable. And a lot of piggybacking. Yeah. I mean, they do a hell of a lot of like humping. We're going on a long trip, drag a bunch of shit. Unload it, drag the sledge back, put a bunch more shit on it, drag it up to there, unload it, go back, sleep, move another mile, go back, get the shit, and move it. Brutal, they do tons of stuff like brutal that. Brutal doubling back, man. And so after the uh, second, so Greeley had made a determination that if by the second summer the resupply did not come, there was a contingency plan in place that was written in army military orders that they would retreat to this place a couple hundred miles south called Cape Sabine on the Ellesmere Island side. And though the ships that were to have resupplied them, if they couldn't make it there, were bound by written order to drop off supplies there so that if Greeley and his men could arrive there and survive. So... There's a lot of controversy over Greeley's decision to leave the Fort Conger longhouse because they had they had another year's supply of food and they had shelter and there was game. But Greeley was a deeply devoted military man and an order was an order. And, you know, he was going to leave and he sets that date. I think it's August 8th, 1883. And it says we're going right. So they they hammer Fort Conger shut dump a bunch of the, um, you know, food and, um, for the dogs, leave all the shit for the dogs. Oh, that's kind of sad too. Like they leave all these damn dogs and they take (laughs) off in boats down a lead and one of the dogs swims out after them and they keep thinking, oh, he'll turn around, he'll turn around. And there's a hair, there's a haunting line where you say like, eventually his head goes underwater like a seal. Right. And Schneider, the and guy who's been one it. of the guys who's been taking care of the dogs, just uh, like is staring at this dog and then he just turns away and he's, he's gone. Um, but so that the, the, deci- the decision to retreat is, is well, controversial. Well, second, I want to add this other thing in there Yeah, that you spend a lot of detail, a lot of time on, yeah. is the blunders and mishaps that plague the resupply ships. Like oh, yeah. one of the resupply ships just simply gets stuck in the ice and the boat gets crushed. Right, and then they're and fucked. sinks, yeah. And there's all the stuff, and then those guys have this like harrowing, like riding on ice flows and this harrowing journey, and somehow they don't all wind up dead, right? And I, they I, get so, rescued. So yeah, the, the the Neptune, like the first ship that's supposed to come get them. What's kind of fun in the in, in the writing of the story is that so I I was able to cut back and forth between what's happening with Greeley and as they begin to. Uh, retreat and just even before while they're out watching to see if the ship's going to come, I cut to what the ships are actually doing, which is getting stuck in the ice on the way up. And so there are all sorts of blunders where people don't do what they were supposed to do. They they, don't leave the stuff. They don't leave the food. And then, you know, the ship gets crushed. And so, like you say, then these guys are all like clamoring around the ice and they have to get like, you know, rescued by there was a lot of whaling ships in the area at that time. And so, you know, they get rescued and one of them just turns around and bags it and goes back because it can't make it through the ice. And then the Proteus ends up with, that's, that's like a huge debacle where um, you've got 
two emergencies going on simultaneously. You know, Greeley and his men are fighting for their lives, trying to get to Cape Sabine. And the men on the Proteus are, the Proteus gets crushed in the ice and sinks right before their eyes as they're standing there on ice, watching it go, watching its masts just plummet into with the all depths, the food with all the freaking food it's so brutal and then you you know you, you're like okay well so what's gonna happen to them and then then these guys in on the proteus are in a um a race for survival themselves you know they're in little whale boats that are uh you know oar boats and they're trying to trying to figure out how to um get out of there while Greeley's moving down through these heinous like you you mentioned leads they're the the like little pathways of water through giant icebergs and huge ice flows. And he's on, you know, they've got a a 28 foot steamship, steam launch, it's called, um, dubbed the Lady Greeley. And, you know, it's like a 10,000 pound vessel. And then they've got like a small flotilla of ore boats. Um, and so all their crap is in these boats and they're, they're like tethered together at first. And they're trying to make it South through, Giant, have you ever been into the up in the Arctic? No, not yeah. like what you're talking about. I mean, I was in Greenland and, and did some kayaking around, and, and it's, I mean, it's terrifying, right? Um, we were, we were in Greenland, and this, uh, <laughs> I got in this boat, and the guy's gonna go shoot some seals. And I, I said, um, I noticed there's no life jackets on the boat. And I'm like, we're about to go through these massive icebergs and it's, you know, they're, they're hauntingly beautiful. And I mean, they look like, like dinosaur, like stegosaurus backs, you know? And I'm like, Hey, why aren't there in this Greenlandic seal hunter guy? And I'm like, why aren't there any, um, life jackets on the boat? And he goes, if we fall in, we don't want it to take that long to die. <laughs> I'm like, I get it, man. Like, I mean, cause you're not, unless you had a dry suit, you're, it's going to be maybe, you're gone, right? So anyway, yeah, I had a guy in the co- I had a guy in the Coast Guard in Southeast Alaska talk about just how sick he got of the the, the accidents. Oh my god! And he's like, you know what? Then I had a couple. Their boat sinks. They make it to shore. We find them dead on the beach. <laughs> frozen to death. <laughs> Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Yeah, I mean, and so what's once they set once they Greeley and his men set out in these craft to move south, things get really, really gnarly because first of all, they're not nautical men; they're army men. They weren't meant to do this. They weren't supposed to. It wasn't really in the plan. I mean, they I guess they thought they could go overland potentially, but that's not viable. So they're moving through these leads, and they're constantly having to take all their crap, like as as icebergs. And these things called flows, there's all, you know, there's flatter, like big, big, like rafts of ice. Some of them are miles long. They, they spend one day looking at, at a iceberg go by or, or a flow and it's like 15 miles long. It yeah. takes nine hours to pass them. Crypto paleolithic. I mean, there's all sorts of, you get into the, uh, all sorts of names for the icebergs. I have a footnote on there. There's I icebergs to, that are 60 feet high. Yeah. And, and then, then there's much more of it below. And then old ice. Yeah. And then like ISIL, the boat will get pinched between two pieces oh, of ice and it pops that boat like a pimple. <laughs> it just shoots it up out and then the boat's just on the ice and everybody camps on the ice for days. Then a new crack forms. They shove their boat back into the crack. It's so brutal. And so they're constantly like going on and off of these icebergs and trying to avoid being crushed to death by them. And, you know, at one point, one of the most harrowing, harrowing parts of the story is when they, they get, at a certain point, they or on an iceberg and it gets um, cleaved in half by another iceberg that's coming from the north and it hammers them. And then they're, they're on this berg for like weeks 
weeks. And they're just floating along just helplessly in the middle of this body of water being buffeted and hammered. And they're like in, they're exposed. I mean, they, they can sleep some, some of them, they have a big teepee. Um, and then they also have tarps that go over the boats that they're yarding up onto the, um, iceberg every day. But the, the exhaustion, when you think about of like, of taking all this equipment and getting it up onto a, an iceberg, maybe tethering the lady Greeley to the side with these ice anchors. And then hours later you're getting hammered and you have to, it, you're going to get crushed. So you have to put all that crap back in the water. And meanwhile, you're looking at your food stores and Greeley was, very, you know, he had men that were, their job was to know exactly how yeah, many the rations. commissary. Yeah. The actually comm- weighing it out with a scale. Right. And you're going, and he's going, we have, you know, 40 days rations left. And by about October 15th, it's going to be dark for the next four months. And they had all these, like, they had all these assumptions about all these points and markers where like, oh my God, oh, they'll have left 10,000 rations. And then they get there and there's like 40 rations. Wow. They must all be down the next spot. And they get down the next spot. Yeah. There's some lemon. There's a lemon. (laughs) Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so many heartbreaking moments where you think, okay, they're going to, they're going to pull this off. Right. You know, they, they, by some miracle, they like end up landing not that far from Cape Sabine ultimately, or, or they're able to get there, you know? And then just like you say that then they go to a cairn and it says, Oh, by the way, all those rations that we were supposed to leave. Uh, well, our ship sunk and we didn't leave them. <laughs> and so they're like, peace. What? <laughs> yeah. You're like, and then, you know, Greeley's always very just like, what's the next thing that you have to do to like keep this all together, you know? And so there's also what I love about the story is that they're like, like there's mutiny that goes on, you know, there's theft of food. Like once they're all, once they make it to Cape Sabine, they've got like certain amount of food and they're trying to parse this out. Like, okay. If if we can survive the winter, it's going to last us maybe till March, you know. And then they, you've got they're like dispatch two guys to be out hunting seals every day. You got Jens and and um, Eskimo Fred out in the kayak trying to shoot some seals. Bears are you know, and then there's all sorts of um, shorebirds. And at a certain point, I mean, and they keep sticking walruses, but they lose them. Oh my god, it's so brutal! Like because a, a walrus could would would be their salvation, yeah. you know. But they shoot the walrus, and then it like slithers off of the iceberg, and and they'll be like this blood slick, and then just. No, I was trying to, devi- you know, you know, the thing that you didn't spend a lot of time on that really struck me is right. at one of the points on the way down, they land at a place they dub Eskimo Point. Because it's full of artifacts. Right. And a whale carcass. Yeah. And pieces of like equipment made from ivory and structures. And then you think like, here's these like 25 military trained individuals with firearms and modern equipment. And they're like, quote, stuck and dying and starving to death in a place where for three or 4,000 years... You had these marine-based mm-hmm. mammal hunters, right, who were thriving and raising babies, right, and and ha- well, and so without you're thinking- any of the things, right, without the weather equipment and the guns and the man-made materials, and yeah, and they were just like how like the dichotomy of of the skill sets, right. Yes, you can see that these- They're like raising children there. 
and right across the way, like still, you know, uh, entire villages. Um, yeah, I mean, I think really these guys were certainly not as well suited to the environment as the yeah. people had, had been there before. Way different expectations. Yeah. And, you know, bringing your food with you versus having to, to, um, gather or procure it yourself, you know? And I think given that the circumstances, Greeley and his men were managed very well, uh, they were quite industrious, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, they built these shrimp, Some of them, yeah. shrimping yeah. nets, right? You know, and they, they were shooting, uh, lots of birds. And so, you know, but at a certain point, ate a lot of Arctic Fox, they ate a lot of Arctic Fox and they ate, and I don't want to tell the story about the bear. Cause that's a great story. I want you to read the story about the bear. Um, but the, uh, you know, at a certain point, their culinary situation is down to a gelatinous gruel of shrimp and like the snipped off top of a buffalo hide sleeping bag and the soles of your boots. You know, I mean, they're seriously eating. There's some images in there that are just, they haunt me, you know, like crawling around on your hands and knees, plucking caterpillars off the ground and just plucking it in, in your mouth. And um, also, you know, uh, eating just, eating lichens and saxifrage and all the like plants they're just like putting it in their mouths it's so it's sort of ghoulish do you feel that it gives too much away to talk about i don't want to call it rescue is a little dramatic to talk about not for the film version no not for the <laughs> hand like for the well it says this in the back of the book i know i was seven I was people about that. seven people live yeah yeah so well yeah and I, what i want to talk about are you comfortable <laughs> talking about the whether or not Oh, me. There, there's a great, there's a great line, there's a great line from "In the Heart of the Sea." I love that book. Nathaniel Philbrick is that his name? Yep. Where later, when people realize that after the whale ship Essex tragedy, there had tragedy, there had been some cannibalism, right. and someone's asked, like, "Hey, did you know Fred Jones? He was on Essex." And he says, "Know him? I had him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Greeley didn't want to own up. To well, the cannibalism. Yeah. I mean, so in, in the end- um, You don't like talking about this? Oh, I know. I, no. I, I really want to talk about this. I mean, this show's a meat eater, right? Hmm. Um, meat's meat. Yeah. And yeah. I, I've eaten folk. Yeah. Because <laughs> I had a- Yeah, I have uh Right now, I have a cadaver. Oh, man. I have a cadaver's uh, bone crammed up in my tooth hole. Huh. And yeah. a lot of that comes loose. <laughs> I've eaten folk. <laughs> and I've taken to nibbling uh, on the little bits. How is it? I don't mind it. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same as like your friend is well, frozen over there. No, but Yanni's you know. eating, uh, he's drank human breast milk. <laughs> well, and he's eating human most, meat. Oh. Because he's eating why? placenta. Oh, oh, you did it. You did that. Yeah. Kind of. I wouldn't say it counts either. Really? What does it take? It's like throwing it on the barbecue. And <laughs> you eat, eat it raw, aren't you? <laughs> To make it count, you're supposed to eat it raw? Well, yeah. No, you can... We we had the placenta shipped off, and it was dehydrated and came back in pills. Wow. Did you feel good? Strong <laughs> like bull? Just like just like I take my vitamins every day. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think of them as a cannibal. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's... Okay. There's no, no question... Get, like, get into the whole... Like, yeah. like they, 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 wow. they, they, they exhumed bodies later, oh, and they have been butchered. Right. So... Here's the thing. You got. Um, <laughs> Why well, don't you? You're not being. Just lay it out. All right. Listen, here, cheer me out. People aren't going to not buy your book because, because they heard about the end. 
No, no, no. It's the journey. Listen, everybody knows that, that there's cannibalism check, in the Donner let's, Party. Let's check this out. Hey, Phil, are you, were you like, oh, dude, I'm going to buy this book. But then you're like, oh, they eat everybody in the end. Never mind, I'm not buying it. <laughs> no, honestly, as I've been listening to this conversation, I've been thinking about going to Corinne, our producer, and seeing if she has a copy that I can read. He's not going to buy, well, he's gonna, it, he's not gonna buy it, but he's, he's <laughs> going to look. Great. He's going to go look for a free copy. Why don't you go to the library? I'll, I'll spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. So what? His Labyrinth really, device. <laughs> Labyrinth device, yeah. buddy Levy. Uh, Phil's going to go see if he can't get himself a free one. It's it, so it's a funny thing connected to that in the in the research. So um, I have a first reader. He's the guy I dedicated the book to, my friend John Larkin. And uh, you know, so I got the sources in the original version you now, so I know how my, all my sourcing is going. And one of the major books about it, it, it's its title is Six Came Back. And John's reading along in like chapter three, and he's like, "Huh, I, I wonder how this is going to work out." You know, <laughs> Six Came Back. It's like. Yeah, that's it was a great, rough. That's a great uh, point, man. Yeah. So, no, I'm not worried. What's interesting about it like, is- It'd be it, like if Old Yeller was called, um, <laughs> in the end, they shoot this dog. Uh, poor Old Yeller. <laughs> yeah, it'd be different. Um, oh, you know what I want to do? Uh, we always ask this, and I can remember the name. What's it called when you put a quote in the beginning of a book? Oh, the epigraph? Yeah, that's right. Or Dude, epigram. Epigrammatic. One, I'm trying to find this one. Here it is. It's oh. tight. It's tight. By many paths- and by many means, mankind has endeavored to penetrate this kingdom of death. Fritjof oh. Nansen. That yeah. guy, by the way, Nansen, uh, he, he broke Greeley's farthest north record 13 years later. Oh. So and they held it for only a short time. All right, let's so, get back to the, yeah, can- the cannibalism. Eat, eating folks and, get, and then how they eventually, some of them lived. Well, right. You don't so, want to give it away. You, you're not, anybody no, can find this out. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it, so- these guys are in a dire situation and they begin, um, they begin to die of starvation, right? And so what ends up happening, um, one of the most macabre elements of it is, so they're, somebody dies, first guy dies, uh, and they have to get together and muster the strength to um, like carry them up on this place they dubbed Cemetery Hill. <laughs> yeah, and it's I, lo- like I love this, the creativity. This Cemetery Hill, we'll call it. Um <laughs> You got another option, <laughs> and it, you know. But so they they put they start burying these guys, and at first they have the strength to dig a you know a sort of fifteen inch deep grave. Yeah, but even still, they're kind of it, covering them with snow and right. Gravel I mean, it's and, like a scree. It's like hard ass frozen scree slope, right? And so they 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 begin to um, they begin to starve, and you know, it, it, there's all sorts of um, attempts to go get. To these Herculean attempts to go get more of the English cache of food that's like somewhere out there that's been left by another expedition years before. But anyway, so as they begin to, to die, they, they're like, it gets harder and harder to bury them. And at a certain point, people are, you know, sort of just being left up on Cemetery Hill, but like, or frozen, they, they throw some of them down in this thing they call the tidal crack. So they're near the, the shore. And, you know, what you don't you don't hear about the the cannibalism until the the rescue. Um, so there's this a, a rather amazing um, effort by the Navy to go get them, and it's all spearheaded by Greeley's wife uh, Henrietta. And so they they finally arrive there, and these guys are how in many dire. years into it? Well, this is the third year. So they've been on they've been at Cape Sabine for like eight. But there's months. been no communication. No, but you know well, what they find? Well, here's yeah, the crazy there is. thing. It's fucking bizarre. They find 
like the boat that goes up, one of the boats that goes up that's supposed to do the rescue, like everything goes bad, but they wind up and here and there they leave some stuff. And these guys find some lemons that are left in a cache. And it turns out the lemons are wrapped in newspaper. And they start taking these scraps of newspaper and reading them. And they're reading about themselves. Right. And they're reading about that the president was shot and died. That, like, and they're starting to get, like, little torn, torn bits of what's going on. One of them learns that in his absence, he's been promoted. Right. Lieutenant Lockwood. And he, so, so that they come back from these caches, right? And they, I, I love that scene where they're like, they'll hold them up by candlelight. And, and so the lemons, which, you know, they've been sent along to help thwart scurvy. So the lemons uh, are wrapped in all this paper. And so they're, they're reading them. And once, once Lockwood uh, learns that he's been promoted, I love that because he, then he, then he uh, you know, one of his first missions is to go, and, and by this time, these guys are freaking scrawny and dying, you know? And so he, he wants to go put the, the pendulum up, build this cairn. There's a spot on the coastline that Greeley says, even if we perish, I don't want our records to perish. Oh, that's a sad part. Yeah. And so the Lockwood, his first uh, act as uh you know, of the first lieutenant is to go place this cairn and this pendulum that they've brought along um, up on this promontory so that if the boats get there, they'll see it because they're kind of tucked away in this little cove. And, and he has a lot of their records and their, oh, photo- yeah. and their, not the negatives, what do you call them? Yeah, he has the plate, the photographic plates. Yeah. He sticks and, them there because like, if we all die, there's a better chance they'll find it down there. Right, and in, in, in the the Karen uh, and that pendulum end up uh, figuring in in, uh, in in the rescue. But so here's the deal: these guys are, you know, they're doing everything they can. They're eating sh- pounds and pounds of shrimp and and grubs and all this crap, right? So you got guys that are frozen next to you. Hey, man, I'm not down they're, on a breed. <laughs> I, I would have done the same thing. That's what, that's my question. So, like, I mean, would you eat? Do you think you'd eat? Absolutely. Live, would you eat another person? Of course. Before I died? Yeah. Yeah. If I was out with like Phil and Has Phil died any, and I'm like, well, I'll die too unless I eat Phil. Hell yeah. Phil, I would, I would have, I would have, I, my dying words would be Phil, eat my flesh. Don't feel bad. Right. And so what's kind of- Mine too. Thanks, uh, Sort of, uh, <laughs> there's some, uh, you know, so there's this French guy, Octave Pavey, right? That um, one of the things that's sort of freaky about when they, when they find, so you got these guys that are- Lying on the ground and, you know, sometimes pretty close to the hut they're in because they're, they're too exhausted to carry them very far by this time. And, you know, they're preserved and they're, they're kind of frozen. I mean, they're like, they're in the freezer, you know, they're in cold storage, right? So when the, when the rescue comes, they, they're very deliberate about taking each body and labeling it and drawing diagrams about who was where. And then once they get them on the ships, because there's a military operation, they begin to um, undress them and they're going to kind of put them in preserving baths, right? Oh, Uh, fluid. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, yeah, they have these holds on the ship where they can, you know, put these bodies and preserve them. And that's when they discover that a number of the bodies have Missing a little meat. Like, and some of it is sur- so surgically sliced that looks like it was done by a surgeon. And so that suggests that, that Pavey um, likely uh, was one of the perpetrators because it, the cuts are precise. Uh, and he's the only surgeon on the expedition, right? Yeah. And so then there's others that are, 
you know, slightly dismembered and, um, you know, chunks gone, right? So what ends up happening is that they have to, you know, Greeley and the others make a pact that they will, you know, Greeley and some of his men, the, the remaining six, one guy, Allison, dies on the, um, he's the guy with the stumps and the, he's, he's lost both of his legs and most of his hands from frostbite. And so he lives and makes it onto the, the rescue ships, but he dies um, en route. So of the six, they make a pact that they'll, they'll never tell who ate whom, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's one of those codes of honor. They're just like, Greeley says, if, if cannibalism occurred, I know nothing of it, right? Yeah, that's a cop out. <laughs> um, you know, he, I think he's protecting yeah, the memory sure. of his men. He's protecting the families. I would do that. Like if we ate Phil, <laughs> let's just say Would Phil. you picture, Yanni, that we would be like, let's not tell anyone we ate Phil, or would you go back and be like, we ate Phil? Yeah, probably wouldn't tell anybody really? who, who we ate. <laughs> it's like, because when you weren't around, thing. when you weren't around, I'd be like, yeah, he ate him. Those kids don't want to know that uh, he got eaten. Who's the guy? Albert Packer, right? Um, the, the guy who ate. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bludgeoned him, and ate him. I've yeah. been to um, I've been to the, one of the the caves that, that Packer supposedly yeah. hid out in. Yeah, yeah. Was it was it cool in Wyoming? Yeah, yeah. Slept in there. Yeah, I'm not joking. Did, did it freak you out a little bit? A little bit. You know, so I think the question is like, why are we still? Um, what is it about cannibalism that still carries this? Um, Taboo stigma. Are you asking me? Oh, I'm I'm posing it as a as a question. I'm asking myself because I asked myself a number of times, like, what would I do in the situation that these guys, that whatever it is, is old. Uh, that thing that makes us not want to eat each other. Yeah, I think yeah. that like the ta- like the incest taboo, mm-hmm. the cannibalism taboo. I mean, these are like things that had to have occurred and been pretty forceful at a very early time in human development. Right. If you do and this, you can just generally see like uh why like how these things would come about. Yeah. I mean we it, tend to do better not eating each other. It, it creates a kind of anarchy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um so but you know we're we're rational enough now to know that like okay if if we're out there together if if one of us dies, all right, you know, it's cool. Like go ahead. I'm already dead. You know, yeah, well, no, um, I don't need it. But you know, this is we have to do place place um, a little bit of ourselves uh, in the time where period where we're, which was not okay. Um, so well, I understand. picture like picture like this. Say you're in a horrible situation t- t- today, and you wind up having to eat somebody. You eat your buddy. You get rescued. You come home and you're laying in bed with your wife at night, right? <laughs> right. And then your wife is like, "Oh, I love him. So glad he's home." But like in the back of her head is like, he ate his buddy. Yeah. It's going to color. It's going to color. Like they might accept it and get it and all that. It's going to color the way they view you. Forever. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're done. You're done for. It's just people you know? are going to treat you different. Right. And so that's one of the things that I, I was, I like, I hedged a little bit, you know, 
part of me when they're like, well, let's put weird, let's put cannibalism on the cover. And I'm like, you know what? Okay. Yeah, that's a great idea for marketing. Um, you know, but you know, it's true. I mean, everybody. The triumphant and tragic and cannibalistic Greeley Polar Expedition. Labyrinth of Ice. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. But I mean, look, we all remember the Donner Party. Um, that's what, that's the one thing everybody can tell you, you know, about the Donner Party. Yeah. All oh, right. Those guys, they're somewhere. Right. Know they ate each other. <laughs> right. And you, all the other stuff that's, you know, sort of heroic about what they were, how they were able to survive. Yeah, yeah but so in it this really case, colors an expedition. It does. But I try not to, um, uh, you know, I try to handle the cannibalism in a way that doesn't make it, um, I don't know, yeah. no, salacious, I, I, I guess. Yeah, you treat it respectfully. Yeah. <laughs> sure. It's important to treat cannibalism with some respect. And yeah, reverence. and I'm only bringing it up just because <laughs> it comes up now and then. Um, it's a thing <laughs> yeah. that we uh, muse on and are curious about. So I, I'm not trying to over, I'm not trying to overdo it. No, I, I get it. I'm I not mean, going for the salacious details. Or the, you know, I mean. I asked you about sex fact, on the frontier and I asked you about cannibalism. Right. Both happen frequently. <laughs> uh, Turns out. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, man. How are we doing? We got it. We've been going for three minutes. No, that seven seven a lot. How long have we been going for, Phil? <laughs> Two hours pretty much on the nose. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I have a question, though, before we go. No, you get a closing thought in a minute, but oh, I want to plug the books. Oh, okay, go. Okay. So if you are interested in learning about, uh, like, the best way to take on American history in my mind is not to go to history class. I'm not saying you should skip history class. But you go to history class, you're like, oh, hey, boys and girls, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And here we are today. Um, a better approach is to take the chunks. <laughs> to take the chunks and take yeah. a look at the chunks. Yeah. And um and you have a host of books. But okay. I picked the I gravitated toward these. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh and they're really telling chunks about where we're at. Like where we were at as a people. Um in a very interesting century. Amazing place. An amazing time. Yeah. Yeah. Like that 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 Crockett, right, and, and what it tells you about American politics and what it tells you about American violence, right, and then, um, and then, I keep calling it Crockett. The book is American Legend. The title is American Legend: The Real Life Adventures of Davy Crockett, and then Labyrinth of Ice. The subtitle being the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition. Just kind of like it's sort of it's like these like harrowing adventurous snapshots of sort of like where we were as a people what our priorities were yeah. and some of the people that we put forth yeah i love that and you know behind both of them i think is this idea of adventure and of of the unknown right because in the case of, of crockett you know um you know it wasn't really known completely what lay beyond right no. the frontier and in the case of you know Greeley and his men they're going to places no other human had ever been in fact when they build fort conger it they are the highest living humans on earth yeah, yeah. like they they were going farther north than than the, the, the indigenous than the yeah. indigenous hunters went well right cuz they're like okay there's actually no game out there you know like yeah. why would i go there yeah you know um you might <laughs> reconsider, <laughs> right? Um, but so, yeah, I, I really like that—the notion of um, of how history can, you know, there's a narrative there. So there's always just incredible stories, and 
it also is a, is sort of a snapshot into what people were thinking, the way they behaved, um, what they were willing to do, oh, how, how much they could how take. Brutally tough, toughest people. I mean, um, yeah, just the idea that you can um, survive some of these things to me makes makes going out, you know, hunting, and it, I, I'm always thinking about it when I'm out. Like, wow, this is hard, but it's not that hard, you know. Um, so I really appreciate talking to you about both these books and, um, I'm excited to, um, you know, to, to meet you really. December 3rd, yeah. Labyrinth of Ice comes out. Yeah. You can probably go and order right now, right? And they'll hold your order and send you the book. Oh yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's, um, available, available now. Um, I did, I, this is so funny. Um, my son, okay. He's 25 years old and he and his friends, they are, they are, um, you know, they're grown men and they've been arguing, apparently, Hunter, my son and Kyle and this kid Evan. About you named your kid Hunter? Risk. I named him Hunter. That's yeah, a risky move. Is he a Hunter? Uh, no, not yeah. really. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, name backfires on people, <laughs> <It does>. man. <laughs> there's some uh, hardcore hunters named Hunter. Right. But he, not, well, you know, not there, a may, there may still be time. It's we'll not see. a guarantee. But it's funny because they've been arguing, I, This is, and these are relatively intelligent men, and they've been arguing about this question of <laughs> so whether or not- you're saying your son is relatively well, yeah, intelligent. He's a highly intelligent child. <laughs> but uh, he, this I, this just makes me wonder because I have my own position on it. So the, the argument is whether a man, and I don't know who that is this man the question would be. you wanted to ask. Yeah, me? it's a question I want to ask you. If there's a if there's a grown can a grown man uh, and whoever that man is kill a wolf with his bare hands? And my yeah, brother well, Matt would tell you yes, and he'll well, tell you how to do it. Well, so I was my okay. question is what man could, would this be, and how would he do it? My brother has two uh, ways that he speculates he would do it. One, uh, sometimes he talks about that he would uh, crush its throat. The old and his other favorite way that he talks about is you get a good grip on its lower jaw. Oh, yeah. And you get a good grip on its upper jaw, and you just hold it and tire it out. The old mandibular grab. Because it can't close its mouth. And he's like, he would hold it and hold it and hold it. And hold it and hold it <laughs> until it's so tuckered out. Right. And then he crushes its throat. Now, the, I have to say, there's some validity to that. Because I have, I mean, I'm a dog man, right? And I have grabbed, I learned a while ago, that if you grab a dog's lower jaw and just hold it with your, you know, as hard as you can, they they're, they can't bite from above. Yeah. Now, so, but it, the question is, how do you get a hold of the, of the wolf's lower mandible? Uh, you can break up a dog. I, I think, I guess dogs hate. Is when you put your finger in their butt. <laughs> so, People say if you got two dogs, they're locked. Two dogs that are fighting, yeah, and they're yeah. locked in a death grip. If you put your finger in their butt, they quit fighting. You have Which not is probably true of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have not field tested this though, right? No, but I bet you it's true of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to just say that your brother has a position. Do you have a? Do you think uh, you this is more of when he gets to drinking and talking, oh, yeah. and we get to talking about what would you do? He's like, oh, I'll tell you what I would do. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's absurd. Um, like I. But your kid wants to know. Well, he wants to know what you think about whether a guy could kill a wolf with bare hands. Yeah, sure. Okay, what? Like your no. how much you weigh, Yanni? <laughs> two hundred pounds. Yanni's two hundred pounds. So let's say I mean a huge wolf. Like everybody likes to talk about the ones that are over hundred pounds. There's a lot that aren't. Yeah. So there's a wolf. I don't know. This wolf seventy five pounds, and Yanni and him getting a skirmish. Yeah. Is it possible? Yeah. I saw a video recently where a kangaroo has oh, a dog in a headlock. Right. So yeah. Ponder that. Yeah. And this dog's helpless. Just totally messes him up. Yeah. So could Yanni, big strap and Latvian, 
right. throw down with a wolf and win. If he came back and told me he killed a wolf, I would be like, eh, that's cool. You did it with Rams. One-on-one, yeah. Mano-e-pavo? No, mano-e-paro? Peril? How do you say Mano-e-peril? If I had to deal with the pack, it'd be Ma- tough. It'd be mano-e-lobo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A pack. That's where Yanni draws limits. <laughs> All right, I just want to mess with you. He, I, I don't know. A large, why Yanni just... thinks that he might run into trouble with a large pack. <laughs> right, what, uh, what, what else you got, Yanni? Um, I want to go back to Crockett real quick and just Please. figure out. Tell me in a can you tell me in a concise way exactly how I know you guys talked about him being famous for being famous, mm. but how did the initial famous come about? Right, because he so. would be like I'm part alligator and my mama <laughs> was a bear, and my daddy was a so it was just him just out shit talking. Yeah, so he was making up <laughs> stories about himself, and then you know get written up in papers, and then there was this um, playwright like, who ended up going, "Man, this this guy is fantastic! Like he's this guy's awesome." So let's just make a character uh, about um, his name is like Nimrod Wildfire. Yeah, you know, we'll make a character that everyone actually knows. Yeah, where's is Crockett? Where's the coonskin cap? Hunts right. bears, lives out in Tennessee. And then that play like tours around the cities, you know, it's like in Washington, it's like Broadway. Uh, and you've got this character, this flamboyant frontiersman character who's like talking like the country bumpkin. And then um, it, everyone knows it's based on the I life can of whip Crockett. my weight and wild cats and <laughs> jump Mississippi in one big jump. And people would meet Crockett and be like, oh, oh you're, you're the guy that you're the guy who can leap he's the like, Mississippi. He's like, well, I mean, you know, kind of. <laughs> If I have a boat, yeah, I mean, yeah. So he had um, he he was very shrewd about benefiting from like once the once people all thought, oh wow, this guy is amazing, like he's all these things. He never um, like discouraged them from believing it. Sure, you know? it just snowballed at that point. But I was sort of wondering the the, yeah. the, the beginning. Like imagine, uh, okay, you know how? Oh, in the beginning, yeah. I mean, well, it was, it, it was a slow. It was kind of a slow build, right? So he when he started running for Congress. Then he like really latched onto that persona of the of the excellent marksman and the hunter and the you know this guy who could win a cow in a shooting competition right so he he just he just rolled with it and he was more interesting than a lot of his counterparts right yeah because he actually did some legit stuff yeah I mean he was like out there living it um, so be like let's say you know you thwarted a bear attack by hitting a bear in the face with a trekking pole mm-hmm. let's say down the road. I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. Then. Oh, I was like, down, what? Really? down the road. Uh, it winds up being that uh, you've done this a handful of times, and maybe even killed one with a trekking pole. And people are like, "Did you really kill all them bears with that trekking pole?" And I can't say it ain't true, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, pretty soon, you're just like that crazy Yanni, that guy and his trekking yeah, poles. You watch, and you're like, "By God, I'll tell you a story." You know, and it just pretty soon you kind of create like a sure larger than life. And it was like in the end, you you did hit a bear in the head with a tracking pole. That's pretty awesome. Oh yeah, that, I mean that you did that. Don't mess with yeah. Yanni. Man. I know. It's like, you see during... that power ring on his hand? Show him. Is that? Oh yeah, that'll come at you in that'll... a blinding, a blinding flash <laughs> of silver. Right, but I mean, I think that's a that's an excellent uh, explanation of how it works. You know. Um, it it builds from the the lore and you know you like you're not gonna 
like right now, are you going to argue the fact that you, if somebody said, yeah, like uh, the bar, they're Heard like, you're a bad mofo. Took down a bear, you know? Took <laughs> in the eye. Shucks. That <laughs> yeah, wasn't nothing. <laughs> um, what else you got, Yanni? Uh, I've just been looking at, while we've been talking about this, the spots where uh, Greeley went, Fort Conger, and the the map around that area, man, it looks like a bad place. <laughs> a bad Not a good place vacation to spend spot. A, spend a couple of years. Well, yeah, especially when, um, you know, when the so sun- So Fort Conger's the farthest north they made it? I uh, no, no. They, so from Fort Conger, they made it to like 82 degrees- 24. Running little sides. Spike oh, camps. Right, right, Running right. spike camps yeah. out yeah, of there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's when they, they would go off in the sledges, right? So they, they made expeditionary treks out, uh, which were really dangerous too, because there was always the danger of breaking through the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason the Greenlandic dudes were so useful is that they could, they could read the ice. They would know, you know, um, how thin it was that they were, they, they spend their lives there. Whereas the, the army guys were learning on the fly. And these Greenlandic guys would say like, don't go, don't go there. Yeah. There's a don't point where they're there. looking at a chunk of ice, wondering if they get across it and they see how walruses are busting their heads up through. Oh man. And he's like, if that walrus can bust his head up through it, you can't go. Yeah. Yeah. Then, like, then they have to like retreat. But uh, yeah, so they, they went considerably farther North than Fort Conger. Um, you know, I think it, I think it was thirty days out um, on the sledge to get to the farthest north, and then thirty days back. It's just unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. It's got hunting, it's got starving, it's got ice crossing, fox shooting, people eating, labyrinth of ice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. You hooked, Phil. Yeah, I, I will, I'm excited to, to pay money for the book on oh, December yeah. 3rd. You know what? I'm going to tell everyone that works <laughs> okay. here. I don't know how many copies of this around the office, but I'm going to count for all of them, and I'm not letting Phil go near the sons of bitches, and Phil's <laughs> buying his own. Yeah, you do, do it. Do it right now, Phil. Gladly, yep. Yeah. Put it in my cart right now. Here we go. Let's just close seal the deal. It's actually- Don't just put it in your cart. Let me see. Send me that little order. Show us that little order complete button. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, you're you were you were saying uh, it's that December's not a good month. It's, it's actually the uh, it's too cold for reading books about Amazon cold an Amazon top ten pick um, for the month of December. Whoa. Hello, I'm very psyched about that. So when you're sitting yeah. there all cold, yeah, you'd be like, you think you're cold? <laughs> Check this. You out. really want to be cold uh, until your foot fall, until your foot falls off yeah. and you don't know it. Don't tell me about you being believe cold. that you have to tell the guy. They, they don't have the heart to tell him. Like your foot just fell off uh, while we looking, were talking. Foot's looking great. <laughs> I'm going to throw it out of the tent, though. At that point, uh, <laughs> you, you can't really be there mentally. Oh, uh, no. I mean, if your foot just fell off and you didn't know it. Allison's uh, happening. Like, There's yeah, a little mad. Everything's not firing. This is the like last thing I'm going to say yeah, about yeah, these guys. Yeah. They have this like masochistic tendency to... Uh, sit around and even write down like even write down if I could have anything to eat here's what it'd be and that's an interesting list because yeah. the stuff they eat isn't like what you now you'd be like pepperoni pizza right and right these dudes are like um these guys are like uh 
pate de foie gras. <laughs> Some of them, they think of the They're most like lentil soup. <laughs> elaborate meal they've ever had, like in New York. And by the way, have you ever been like, of course you have, but like super freaking hungry and you do start having f- these elaborate food fantasies. Oh, dude, right? yeah. And you sit there and go, and it's you're right, it's totally masochistic because they can't have any of it. They're eating freaking seal blubber. You know, you know? where my mind goes? Where? Those, uh, when you go into a gas station and they got that glass display case full of all that brown food. <laughs> I sometimes think about if I could just get into one of those glass cases or if our diet's different, I'm thinking about a salad. (laughs) It's either I want like a great salad or I want to like bust the glass case out with a rock and eat all that deep fried burritos and whatever they got in there. I lean corn dogs. I'm all about beef, you know. No, corn dogs and pizza and like (laughs) fried mac and cheese. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you could fry it a way to fry up some mac and cheese. That's what I get thinking about. Uh, Yanni gets thinking about that breast milk. <laughs> well, let's go get some lunch now, boys. Hey. All right. This has been great. You have to come back. I appreciate it, man. There's, yeah. a, I, there's a couple other stories that I haven't even told you. No, you wrote really? six books. We only talked about two of them. Well, these don't even have anything to do with the books. There are other stuff I did. Oh. But, you know. Um, I'd like to have you back. We're going to yeah. just like, uh, one time we had a guy on, I wanted him on again. And I just asked him how long would need to go by before we'd ask him if he wanted to come back. What do you say? A year. Because he wanted to finish a book he was working on. Yeah, well, so I got to... Um, when you get that... You, yeah. you get that... Uh, Claude Dallas, man. You get uh, that Claude Dallas book wrapped up. Yeah, I actually am in the throes of trying to figure out the next move. Tell um, me what, man. Yeah. I mean, Cla- Claude's been covered, though. Hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. A long time How about well? Has he been covered well? No. Taking under happened. advisement, yeah. Everything's been, all the low-hanging fruit's been plucked, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's always the question. But, you know, I'm trying to enjoy this one. Like, you know, as you know, writing books is really kind of hard, and it's solitary, and you're, you it's know. It's the worst thing in the world. You're sitting there, and then, so, I got a book coming out, you know, in December, and everybody's like, well, so, what, what's the next one? You know, I'm like, I, like, yeah. can we? No, I'm with you. You know, Writing books is horrible. <laughs> uh all right, buddy Levy, Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic, and if you're so inclined, cannibalistic, Greeley Polar Expedition. And also we discussed uh, at length, American Legend, The Real Life Adventures of Davy Crockett. I'm assuming all your books are available wherever books are sold. You betcha. And and then to really piss off all the booksellers, I'm assuming you can get them on Amazon? I think so. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, man. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit 
especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces to me got an all around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.